Hail bear, moth spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy bear, moth, father of my life, speak now, come now. Rise now from the forest, from the furrows, from the fields, and live. Hail bear, moth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy bear, moth, father of my life, speak now. Come now, rise now from the forest, from the furrows, from the field, and live. Hail bear, moth. Spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my skin, my flesh, and walk. Holy bear, my father of my life, speak now, come now. Rise now from the forest, from the furrows, from the field, and live. Hail bear, moth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy bear, moth, father of my life, speak now, come now. Rise now from the forest, from the fu- <laughs> Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all these social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support Cinematic Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, what do we get into today? We have a very special guest joining us today. She is the director of Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror. She is also the author of House of Psychotic Women, the founder of the Miskatonic Institute, and one of the most innovative and original film programmers in the business. Please welcome The Void, Kayla Janice. Kayla, how are you doing today? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. You know, it's it's been a long time coming, but it, it kind of made it easier because you have a new project. So normally for these kind of interviews, we kind of go chronological of like, how did you start and where you end up? But since you have a new film out, I think we should just start with that because it's, you know, it's a fantastic movie. And obviously we're talking about Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And I guess now that it's been on the festival circuit and that runs coming then, how does it feel to have your baby out in the world for everyone to see? Well, it's very nerve wracking. It's also weird because I ha- because of COVID, I have not been able to go to any of the festivals, you know, so, so all the festivals have been happening virtually for the most part so far. Um, and it does seem like there may be some in-person ones coming up and it's still up in the air with like whatever is happening, you know, like whether travel will be allowed or not. And so, yeah, it's weird because I have never made a movie before and I've spent the last 20 to 25 years as a film programmer, writer, et cetera, like practically living at film festivals all year. And so it's just so ironic that I finally actually transition into making a film and it's the one year I cannot go to film festivals, you know? 
So that's a little bit weird, like just sending it out into the world without me with it, you know? But I'm really happy that, you know, people haven't hated it so far and they seem to, you know, be saying nice things about it on the internet and stuff. Internet's a weird, dangerous, seedy place. Seedier than any movie I've ever seen, but there are some good people and there's some good people who have good taste. But... Besides talking about that, what? how did this project come about? It, well, it was actually just supposed to be a bonus feature. So I work for Severn Films. That's my day job. And so I work for them doing editing and producing uh, bonus features for their Blu-rays and stuff. And so we were going to be releasing a limited edition of Blood on Satan's Claw. And I proposed that we just do kind of a short survey of what folk horror is as a as a as an extra for that disc and then as with most of my projects it just grew and grew and grew and grew and became like its own monstrous thing and so then it was too big to go on that disc <laughs> and so i just kept going you know like kept interviewing more people kept you know getting more global in scope with it and yeah so it's like like many severin original productions that's kind of how it started you know like the, most of them started as like a bonus feature for something that just got unwieldy and out of control and be, had to be its own feature basically because you start off with that movie as well as the wicker man and um uh Witchfinder general i don't know why i'm blanking on like the the three the, the unholy three was that always the basis of how you wanted to start the documentary yeah, it was always going to start with the Unholy Trinity. And originally it was actually just going to be looking at British folk horror, you know, because partially because it was, you know, going to be an extra on a British folk horror movie. Early on in the project, that was really where my focus was. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about folk horror in the rest of the world and how these concepts translated to other cultures and stuff. And so it was very Anglo-centric when it first started. And so, yeah, the Unholy Trinity, those were always going to be kind of the core of how it was it was really just going to be like a beginner's thing like a little intro to folk horror so all those british things were kind of the core movies that were going to be discussed now this project involves so many moving parts how do you how did you approach making it once the film was like once it went beyond being a feature read into a feature film well I mean, doing doing bonus features for Severin prepares you a lot for having to do remote shoots and stuff anyways. Like, we don't have the money to be flying around the world with, like, our cameraman to film people consistently. So we have all kinds of people we work with around the world in different countries and stuff who will shoot interviews for us in those places. And so those systems were already in place before I started making my feature. And so I just utilized a lot of that um, for when we needed interviews in like Australia or Italy or wherever, you know, like we would just get the people that we normally would use in those countries to do our bonus features, you know, and of course, like, so the footage all looks completely different, but, <laughs> and that's the thing, like when you get it to a higher budget level, that's the thing you can control that aesthetic so that it all looks the same. But at our budget level, you know, we have to work with what we have. And so we were working with many different people, but that, so organizing that wasn't that much different from how the bonus features work. The different elements that were added to it, of course, were doing like animation and getting an original score and things like that, um, that we don't normally do for the bonus features. And so just more work and also working with editors who were not part of the Severin 
crew, you know, like working with outside editors was something we were doing too. So there was a lot of like shuttling hard drives back and forth and uploading and downloading of files and stuff. Um, and I mean, it was a massive project in terms of the amount of files, you know? So, I mean, the editors were very overworked <laughs> for sure. But it was interesting because being my first film, I kind of was able to ease into it with this very modular type of filmmaking, you know, that wasn't that much different from the bonus features. It was just bigger. It was just on a much bigger scale, you know? Um, but it was still a lot of it was still assigning things, giving instructions for things, waiting for people to hand their work back in so that I could give my feedback on it. And it was kind of nice, you know, it was kind of the perfect thing during the pandemic to be working on a project like that because I, I didn't have a lot of the stresses and issues that people have that are working in narrative film during the pandemic you know where they have to worry about actors and trying to organize something for everybody to be on one set at the same time and all the scheduling that's involved with stuff like that I didn't have to deal with any of that it was actually a really flexible way to make a film. It was really only when once we got accepted to South by Southwest based on our rough cut that things got insane because that, you know, so that was like three months of hustling to act, try to actually finish the movie in time for that deadline. And so everybody was working like crazy during that period. Um, and we handed it in, I think a month, a week before the festival. <laughs> so, so it was, it was really down to the wire. I'm going to say this for, you know, this kind of breaks a lot of rules for a first-time filmmaker. It's it's a documentary, which, you know, a lot of first-time filmmakers make documentaries, but it's also three hours long, and it's about a subject that a lot of, I'd say, Americans aren't necessarily familiar with. I know there's some are, obviously, but did you have any concerns or pushback because of the length or the subject or the combination of both those things? Surprisingly, no. David Gregory, um, who is the owner of Severin, who is the executive producer of the movie, um, and obviously the financier of the movie, he never pushed back against the length. He always was just sort of like, you make it how long you think it needs to be. He's like, because ultimately the length only matters if you want to submit it to festivals. And then that's up to you. Like, if you want to take that risk of it being rejected from festivals because it's too long, then that's up to you, you know? He's like, but he's like, I just care about the Blu-ray. You know, he's like, we're in the Blu-ray business. So it's like, it doesn't really matter how long the movie is for the Blu-ray. So it's really only a matter of whether you think it's too long to get accepted to a festival and if that's important to you, you know? So yeah, he was kind of an amazing support through all of that. And I don't think that if I had gone to David in the at the outset and said, I want to make a three-hour documentary about folk horror and you pay for it, what do you think? Um, like, I don't think he would have jumped at that idea. You know, I think it was just the fact that it was happening incrementally that made it workable, you know, where it was like, you know, it was going to be a half an hour long thing. And then it's like, well, maybe it'll be an hour long, you know? And then it's like, oh, we're going to interview this many more people. Now we're going to get original animation. Now we're going to hire Jim Williams to do a score. You know, it was like all these pieces were kind of coming incrementally. And so it was a lot easier on the cash flow and stuff that way too. You know, like it wasn't this scary thing where, you know, you're looking at the whole budget of a feature film and having to decide if you want to do that or not, you know? So instead it was more like a couple thousand bucks every month that would go towards it. And that, so that was a lot more manageable in terms of cash flow and stuff. And, and also the content 
I mean, once we started getting into the broader scope and it including international movies, David was actually much more interested in that because he was like, I don't know anything about those movies, you know? So, so to him, that was like the most exciting part. The fact that not just as a horror fan, but as a distributor of movies that he could discover new movies that hadn't been released yet and stuff, you know? I mean, that's actually really smart because, you know, there's only a certain amount of, like, American and, like, you know, the beloved classics of any genre, especially cult film-wise, that haven't hit Blu-ray. Obviously, there's still some that are either lost rights-wise or in limbo, but being able to, like, have basically a documentary to show you, like, oh, that's a really cool film. I should check that out. Maybe I can license it later. Was that kind of, like, a bonus to working on this? I mean, I think for David, it was, you know? Like, I think that he was definitely kind of keeping a list of, like, oh, what's what still hasn't come out of all these movies and what is available that we could look at. So I do think that that was exciting for him, you know, because it's got like the documentary then becomes kind of the magnet for all these other things, which, you know, if he can manage to get any of those other films to release or anything, then the fact that there's a new movie at the center of it makes it much easier to kind of build word of mouth, you know, to support those films and stuff. Now, for you personally, what was the most surprising thing you learned about folk horror, be it a particular film or just like kind of a movement or just some weird factoid that you learned while making this movie? In terms of, I mean, the sort of overall biggest thing I learned was more about like shifting the perspective, but it's like in folk horror that is not Anglo-centric. So folk horror that is not British or Australian or American, the horror is usually something like some kind of supernatural thing, some kind of creature, some kind of, uh, you know, demonic entity or some religious related occult thing. And, you know, the people who live in the village or whatever have to somehow fight this thing. And then when you get into, like, England, the horror is not the creature. The horror is the people who believe in the creature, you know? Uh, so the, the horror is, like, these people that have these backwards beliefs. Whereas when you look at, like, Slavic folk horror or Asian folk horror or whatever, it's like, those are the people's beliefs, you know? Like, these are still widespread beliefs or whatever. So it's like, they don't it's not that 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 dichotomy isn't there as much in terms of like uh like oh these backwards people who believe in the stuff it's like all the people grew up with those beliefs and they are still prevalent in that culture you know so it's so it's really kind of the anglo-centric cultures that look at folk horror in this way where the people the folk themselves are the thing that is the scary thing you know and that's why like so many films from that those places involve like cults and things like that it kind of carries over to like all the witch persecutions obviously with witch finder general and then like over here with the salem witch trials and just which you know witch trials in general that happen across most of the english-speaking countries because I, I think in most other cultures you know i don't want to say witches but like you know mystics or anything like that or people that prep practice the cult was kind of more respectable as opposed to like in English language. I don't know if that's something else you've noticed. Yeah. yeah but it's also like one of the other things too is like America and Australia both um, like dealing with the indigenous cultures, you know? So it's like they would look at those people as the people who had the backwards beliefs that they had to get rid of, you know? And then when the slave trade was happening and it was like all the old beliefs that had come from Africa and stuff, they're like, we need to suppress these 
beliefs, you know. And and interestingly, it's often like beliefs of minorities and stuff, you know. And so when you so so that was interesting too when you look at folk horror from the perspective of a minority culture. The folk belief is not a scary thing. The folk belief is often a source of empowerment. The big thing I I learned really was just trying to remember to look at it from a different perspective and to not always come to it from this British perspective or this Anglo-centric perspective, you know, because there's so much British folk horror. I mean, they've been much more prolific in what we would call folk horror that they tend to really, really dominate the conversation, you know? And so it was just a matter of like trying to, you know, half the film is still British, you know, but it's like, but trying to not let it dominate the entire discussion was an important thing for me to try to do. Once the film was completed and you decided you wanted to take a, basically see if you could get it on the festival circuit, what kind of expectations did you have for the film? Were you looking to, for certain festivals you, that you had to get in as like kind of benchmarks to see how the film would go or anything like that? Well, I mean, like when I first started making it and thinking like, oh, maybe this could get into a festival. I was really just thinking of like Brigadoon at Sitges, which is like the free section, you know, like it wasn't like it's it's still like a great section. They have all kinds of amazing retrospectives and stuff in it. But it was like it's a section where they do program like Blu-ray extras and DVD extras as as their programming, you know. Um, And so I had hoped at first that maybe it could get into something like that. And then at a certain point, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is turning out pretty good and maybe I could submit it to more festivals um submitting it to South by Southwest the strategy with that I never expected it to get into South by Southwest so I was shocked by that but my strategy was kind of (laughs) that uh I wanted to submit it to this festival in Amsterdam which is a smaller festival than South by and so I thought well if I, you know, if I haven't played it anywhere before that festival, then that will be my world premiere. And it's like, I have to think about, is that where I want my world premiere? Do I want, you know, like, or do I want to try to get a world premiere somewhere else and they can be my international premiere? But a big part of why I wanted to play that Dutch festival is, you know, it's a great festival and a really fun festival, but also because my favorite food in the world is like this food that you can get in Holland and it's called Fabo. It's like this fast food restaurant that they have there where you pay like a euro and you put it in a slot. Like it's like an automat thing. You put your euro in the slot and you open up this little door and then there's like a croquette. And the croquette is some kind of like breaded, deep fried thing. It's like a tube. And inside the tube is like, I don't even know what it is. It's like some kind of mystery meat. And it's like gravy or something. And it's like my favorite food. Whenever I go to the Netherlands, I'll just eat there six times. I'll just walk around going to every single Fabo I see and getting another one, you know? And so my festival strategy was very much based on, I want to go eat at Fabo. (laughs) So how can I facilitate this? And then ironically, I did not get accepted at that Dutch festival. The film was rejected, Um, but I didn't get, I wouldn't have gotten to go anyway because of COVID, but it was still ironic that everything was about trying to get into that festival and they rejected it. So I I understand that planning because I do plan about plan around like 
good places to eat for anything I do. If like if I'm going to go see a movie someplace, it's like, all right, do they have a good restaurant nearby? Does the movie theater have a bar? Like that that is a tactical thing to think about just in all life. Nick, I know you're a little more traveled than I have. Have you ever in any of your bands played Holland? Never played Holland, no. But uh, but I'm I definitely want to go now. To check out. <laughs> what is it called? Fobo? Fabo. F E B O. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so no, I, I, the most exciting, uh, probably my most exciting food thing was just like ice cream cones with uh, Kit Kats in the middle in Germany. Huh. That was like I'm gonna have ten of these for sure. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do they give you the cone and then they take the Kit Kat and then they just push it down into the middle? Oh, or? No, this is totally like at a gas station, you know, like pre-wrapped at a gas station. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, totally. No, nothing that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Not artisanally made like waffle cone with like gourmet Kit Kats put in. All right. I guess we derailed this nice enough. But again, this is a tip for all filmmakers or if you're a touring band, just Book places where they have good and interesting food. It will make your journey that much better. Except during COVID when you can't go do anything. But speaking of South by Southwest, that was obviously, it was the world premiere, correct? And you actually won the uh, Midnighters Audience Award. How did that feel? That was amazing. I mean, like, it was amazing to even get in to South by Southwest. You know, I mean, it's one of the biggest festivals in the world. It's not normal to, like, make your to make a film for the very first time, like never made a film. I never even made a short film, you know? And I mean, I made featurettes, which I guess could count as short films. But so it was like making my first film and having it get into such a massive festival, that on its own was huge. And to then win an award at the festival was completely surreal it still is it still is completely surreal when I think about it you know and they sent me like an a plaque and stuff and it's yeah it's very strange I feel like if I have if I never make another film in my life you know it's like well I've got that you know <laughs> and I, I forget the name of the festival that I just played it recently but it won another award as well didn't it yeah so the Chattanooga Film Festival which is a it's not a genre film festival but it's very genre centric um, and it won the best documentary award there. There were not that many documentaries <laughs> in the competition, but, but, uh, but yeah, it did win best documentary there. And the one thing I've just been noticing based on online and having seen the film because I made a DCP of it for one of the festivals. So I cheated. Sorry, David, but look, man, I, 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 I've been waiting to watch it too. And it just, like, it, it's a, it's a wonderful film, but like the, the thing I've noticed online is audiences are really connecting with it and on a very, very big level. And you know, how does that feel? Well, it's, it's really cool because like, first of all, I didn't expect the American audiences to click with it as much as they have. I totally thought that they would think it was boring, you know, like I totally thought they'd be like, Oh, it's too long or, you know, it's too academic or whatever. And David and I talked about that too. He was just like, I just want you to know that, you know, you can do what you want, but you have to be prepared for it not, for everybody not being like crazy about it and stuff and people thinking it's boring and stuff, you know, like because it's a three hour movie and people are just like that. People are going to think it's boring. And uh, I was like, that's okay. That's okay. I was like, because I know that's just kind of how I work, you know, like with my books or with anything is like, I like doing, 
I like trying to be relatively epic, you know, with the projects I work on. So, um, so I was like ready for that. And so totally surprised that the American audiences, see, I thought British people might like it because they'll be like, they've heard of all these films and they understand the concepts and stuff. I didn't think that folk horror was as big in the States as it seems to be based on the response to the film. Um, so it may just be like, because the film took me so long to make, usually when I make stuff, people don't care about it right away. It usually takes it like a couple of years for them to care about it. And this, everybody likes it right away. And I think that's possibly because it's two years late being finished. <laughs> so when I wanted to finish it like two years ago, maybe people wouldn't have cared about it as much, but now because it's late, it's like I've I've, we've caught up with each other, you know, and we're kind of in the same place now, like me and the audience. So, yeah, so it's been amazing to see that people like it. I was going to bring up a fact because, you know, my wife does esoteric and like, you know, metaphysical stuff. And I know, at least in Los Angeles, that's huge now. And I know over the UK, that's never not been huge. Do you think because like there's a growing interest in like metaphysical and occultism that's like been coming more mainstream? Because like, you know, obviously there's very few witch shops outside of maybe Salem, Massachusetts and New Orleans and maybe a couple in LA. But now there's, you know, it's almost become mainstream people getting into crystals and metaphysical and like, not going towards maybe more Wiccan witchcraft type stuff and not pure paganism, which is sort of the backbone of a lot, of, at least the British, you know, folk horror. Do you think any of that had a contributing factor of people just really connecting with this? Oh, definitely. Because I, th I mean, I think that like one of the things they talk about in the film is that um, in many ways, we're seeing a repeat of stuff that was happening in the early 70s, you know, like politically, ec like uh, environmentally, uh, and in terms of people's fascination with witchcraft and occultism, you know, it's totally, you know, it's like Etsy. It's like a cottage industry on Etsy, you know, like witch stuff. And everybody seems to be, and I don't mean to say that in any kind of dismissive way or making fun of it. I mean, I just, it does seem as though people are looking for alternative practices to support them through the pandemic or through like whatever, you know, I mean, it's like we're, we're in this kind of period of crisis, you know, and so people are turning to a lot of these things for extra supports. I mean, it, it makes sense because like, you know, a lot of the answers that have been force fed, especially I'd say the post 9-11 world specifically maybe in america it's definitely been a change where you have people like trying to pretend like the 1950s was this really really great puritan time of like everyone went to church and you know prayed to god and all that kind of stuff and other people are like that shit doesn't work for me i need to find something else that does and obviously the 70s is a good parallel because you had a bunch of you know obviously the british way but you had you know u.s japanese but there's also like yeah all the um like if you were a Christian and if you were into Christian stuff, there was like a huge amount of alternative streams of Christianity, you know, that came out in the early 70s, like independent groups and stuff and little offshoots. Um, obviously, some of them didn't turn out so well. <laughs> but, but most of them did, you know, like most of them you don't hear about because they didn't drink a bunch of Kool-Aid, you know. Um, but, but yeah, it was like there were all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of these organizations, you know, and, you know, part of what people 
all, you know, part of why people go back to these like really rootsy forms of spirituality is because inevitably, you know, you have your established religions, but then when you even have smaller ones, as they start to grow and get support, they start to be susceptible to the same kinds of corruption that the larger organizations have, you know? And that often is the things people are trying to get away from. They're trying to strip that aspect of religion away, you know, to where you're not dealing with a corrupt organization, you're just dealing with your kind of daily practice and your daily beliefs. And so that's why people often tend to go for these, like, spiritualities that involve like root work and and gardening and things that you can just do like on your own at home and stuff before we wrap up talk about the film i just have one last question now that you know ultimately what do you hope audience get out of watching this film at the when the end credits roll and they're leaving the theater or they're you know turn off their blu-ray what's the ultimate takeaway that you hope people get from it i mean my my hope is I mean, obviously, one of my hopes is that they'll discover a whole bunch of new films and that they'll have a new way of looking at folk horror and they'll start looking at what folk horror looks like from different perspectives. But also, like, I really wanted the film to feel magical, you know, to a certain extent itself. And so, and I feel like, you know, my editors, Winnie Chung and Ben Shearn, did an amazing job of doing all this stuff I would never have been able to do. Like, obviously, like, I do editing for Severin on the bonus features, but they did this alchemical type of editing that feels mystical almost on its own, you know? And so I I, I would love for people to walk away from the film and just feel like the documentary itself gave them a lot of these feelings of spiritual reinforcement or whatever that they look for in the, in the films, you know, I wanted it to feel a little bit psychedelic and stuff. And I think that it, it is that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to be talking more with Kayla Janice about her extravagant career throughout filmmaking, writing, film programming, you name it. She's done it on the cinematic Void podcast. Folk horror is based upon the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny. It's strange things found in fields. Lights flickering in dark woods. The darkness in children's play. Being lost in ancient landscapes. The devil having a cup of tea with you the power of ritual and the power of collective storytelling. Ancient wisdoms, if you like, that have been long repressed and forgotten, rise up again, very often to the consternation of complacent modern man. It's a way of accessing all those layers of meaning, the build-up in a landscape, that build up in a culture and that often build up unofficially. It's a sort of illegitimate culture that has sustained just through sheer force of will of the people, you know, the folk. Folk horror ultimately asks, what if the old ways were right? Whoa. 
Welcome back. We've been talking to filmmaker, author, and film programming extraordinaire Kayla Janice here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And obviously we started the podcast off talking about what you've been most recently doing. But now we're going to kind of go back in time. So more or less I want to just ask, I think it's always important to figure out, you know, where where this all began. So could you tell me about how you fell in love with film and wanting to do all the wonderful things you have done for film. Well, I mean, like film was probably my earliest memories really were watching films, you know, uh, watching horror films specifically. My parents were big. uh, I I don't want to say cinephiles or movie nerds because they definitely weren't, you know, they weren't having deep discussions about movies and they couldn't name all the directors and actors or anything like that. But, you know, I grew up in the 70s. It was the sort of heyday of the movie of the week and the, and you know, like Saturday afternoon creature features and all this kind of stuff. And so there was like a lot of, my parents were very into movies via television, you know, television programming. And so it was just, con- it was a big part of my childhood, you know, like we were just in it, like I knew everything that was playing on ABC and I circled all everything in the TV guide and I was just like obsessed with television and movies from a really young age and would buy movie magazines with my allowance and teen magazines, like old teen magazines that had expired and I didn't realize they were old. And so like all the teen heartthrobs I liked None of my classmates knew who any of them were. And I was always totally confused about like why they didn't like David Cassidy or whatever. And it was like, because the Partridge family had already been canceled like five years earlier. And, but all my teen magazines I was buying at the flea market and they were all old and I didn't know. So yeah, so I was like totally like at odds with the rest of my classmates. Cause I was like, you know, in love with all these heartthrobs from the previous decade, you know, so it started early for me, but not in terms of like a career. I didn't go to film school. I didn't plan on working in film. Uh, I always thought that I couldn't, you know, like I didn't know, I didn't know what people know now, which is that there are all these other jobs around film that are not being a filmmaker, you know? So like, I didn't want to make films. So it would never occur to me to go to film school, you know, because I didn't know that there were things like programming and archiving and library sciences related to film and all these other kinds of things that you can do, projection, you know, whatever. I feel like if I had known that, I probably would have gone into some kind of archiving and restoration classes or something but they also didn't really have a lot of that stuff, you know, like they have actual programming and curating courses now at university you know like they didn't have that stuff then so you know I went to school for medieval studies and that was like what I was getting my degree in and it was like while I was going to school I started up this little fanzine it was terrible terrible fanzine actually other people's writing in it was not terrible but my but overall I feel like it was just like my own writing very early on in my career was very like obnoxious you know like just really like un PC and really like trying to be like a gross out writer or whatever you know like just not so different from like how (laughs) the way I write now and stuff so anyway I started off with this fanzine and then my first film festival kind of grew out of that like I just went from I, I don't even know if I'd been to a film festival you know but I started a film festival 
kind of by accident and I've told this story a million times but like I went to a movie theater and was just recommending that they play a bunch of movies that I'd written about in my fanzine because I would always write about these obscure movies that we weren't allowed to have in Canada like I worked at a video store but we have a obligatory ratings like the like the UK does you know so everything has to actually have a distributor and have a rating in order to be on a video store shelf you can't just like order a movie from the states and put it on the shelf and so there were all kinds of movies that I would write about in the in my zine that were not available in Canada and so some of the readers would bug me they'd be like you know this is great we're reading about these obscure movies but like we can't see them so I bugged this theater about showing some movies and he misunderstood what I was asking and thought I wanted to rent the theater to put on a film festival. And, and yeah, and I, I just was like, no, oh my God, no, I don't have any clue how to do that, you know? Um, but then it turned out it was really cheap to rent the theater. I mean, it was like nothing. And I just got my student loan for school, you know, going to school for medieval studies. And I was just like, you know, like, well, I'll use my student loan and I'll put on a film festival, you know. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had met a couple of friends. I'd made a couple of new friends who had moved from Montreal to Vancouver and they had worked with the Fantasia Film Festival, only not in any official capacity, but in some peripheral capacity, you know. And so they knew people at the Fantasia Film Festival and I met Mitch Davis from Fantasia through them. And so even though I was doing a film festival for the first time, Mitch was a huge help to me. Uh, this other guy, David Witten, who was a distributor in the States, was also a huge help to me. And then my friend Norm Hill, who worked at Scarecrow Video, but he also worked for Anchor Bay, uh, producing bonus features and stuff for them at the time. Um, he was a huge help to me too. He had been in the industry and, you know, done so many He's Norm Hill is kind of an unsung hero guy. You know, it's like nobody really talks about Norm, but he was like such a connector for so many people, you know, like he knew so many kind of weirdo celebrities and stuff like that. You know, he was really instrumental in all the like Monty Hellman releases that that Anchor Bay did back then. And so being friends with Norm was hugely helpful to me. I mean, I would say early on in my career, Norm Hill was the guy that first put me on any kind of path towards this being a career for me, you know? So I owe him a lot, but you know, so I started doing this film festival and it was just a hobby on the side because I worked at a video store six days a week and then did this film festival once a year and it always lost money. And then I got a job working for the Alamo draft house because Tim and Carrie league came up to my festival one year because we had a mutual friend in uh, this guy named Aunt Timpson. And they, uh, well, Tim offered for me to come and work for him. And so I ended up going down there to Texas and programming for the Alamo Draft House. And this was back when it was still, they still had a single screen theater downtown Austin, uh, the original Alamo Draft House. So I, that's where I was a programmer for, was that theater. So then that was a whole other adventure, you know, like working there and, uh, you know, during this incredible uh, first growth period of that theater, you know. The festival you were talking about, that was Cinemorte, right? And, you know, you talked about how it came about, but you were doing this on a very DIY level, and you were bringing kind of maybe not like, you know, obviously not like Arnold Schwarzenegger and people like that, but you were bringing like, you know, people who had made very significant cult films like Jörg Bucherite and Buddy Giovanza, who like, 
the only reason I knew about them is because like I was getting bootleg tapes of all that shit back back in the day and like that's the only way you could see them for a while maybe not combat shock you just get the cut tromo vhs or whatever but there was i actually think there was a bootleg of the uncut but that's we shouldn't talk about bootlegs <laughs> but just looking back that was outside of like fantasia where who's bringing in like some of those upcoming genre filmmakers this was like a festival that was like really bringing in like kind of like the collection of like a lot of the i don't want to call them weirdos but like people who were making very aggressive weird and like not normal genre filmmaking you know films was that just like that was like was that a conscious decision just to push it to that kind of limit yeah i mean for i mean i basically invited people i was interested in personally and i didn't care if the audience knew who they were i didn't care if the audience were fans of their films you know like that was that was not really that much of a consideration for me i was just like I work six days a week at a video store. I pay for this almost exclusively with my wages from my job. And I'm going to invite Jack Taylor because I want to meet Jack Taylor. And I don't give a shit if like anybody knows who he is or not, you know. Um, Obviously, I had certain people like Udo Kier that everybody recognized. He was probably the most famous person that I ever brought. And, you know, Jean Roland, when I brought Jean Roland there, he told me it was the first festival that had ever first North American festival that ever invited him. I don't know if that's true or if he's just, you know, flattering me or whatever, but I mean, he seemed so happy to be there. And I remember I was playing, I can't remember which film of his it was because I, I did play Jean's films like for several years at the festival, but like this one year when he was there and we were playing something that maybe it was fascination and I was so anxious because there were only like 50 people in the theater and which was on the low end of like turnouts for us. And so I was like so anxious and he was in the lobby and he's like, oh, I want to go in the theater and see how many people are there. And I was like, oh God, you know, I was like so dreading this happening. And so he goes in the theater and he comes out and he was like, how did you get so many people to come to my movie? (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, wow, okay. Um, and But that's what he was like. Like, he was used to people really hating his movies, you know? And people did hate his movies. Like, until, like, a few years ago, all of a sudden, everybody decided they loved his movies. But before then, it was like, everyone hated Jean Roland movies. Like, I knew a few people who really liked them, but most times you would read letters in horror magazines and people would just complain about his movies being shit, you know? So he was really excited that 50 people had turned up to see one of his movies. I mean, if he saw the reaction to like when Kino Lorber reissued all his movies, he would have been so stoked, you know? But yeah, so like Jack Taylor I had, Buddy Giovanazzo, Jorg Butgerite, Dick Blackburn who made Lamora, Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Roger Watkins was supposed to come at some point and, and I feel as though... He had some kind of a death in the family or something and had to cancel at the last minute. Jim Van Beber came. Um, Sorry, I was waiting for that name because I've heard many, many hilarious and wild Jim Van Beber stories. Well, Jim was on his best behavior at my festival. Same with Udo. Udo has been a nightmare at other people's festivals, you know, but he was like a saint, at my festival Udo was carrying film cans upstairs for me you know he would go to Starbucks and get my coffee for me and stuff because I would be so busy running around and he would be like do you need a coffee like Udo Kier was like helping out 
like a volunteer at the festival. Because that's how rinky-dink my festival was, that like, <laughs> he got there and he was like, okay, I'm not going to get anything out of this woman, you know, so I'm just going to have to help if I want anything done. And uh, so he was like amazing. And then Jim Van Beber also, like obviously there are issues with Jim Van Beber, but he was on his best behavior at the festival and I always got along well with him you know but at the time it was not that I was specifically trying to invite like transgressive directors or button pushing directors or anything like that as much as I was trying to invite people who whose work had meant something to me personally you know like that was really what it came down to was like I was paying for it and so it had to be something I wanted and it was the same with the films I played for the most part um, there were fil much bigger films I could have gotten for certain things and I just didn't because I was like at the end of the day I still have to pay a thousand dollars to rent that movie and I just don't want to <laughs> like because it's my money you know and so it was it was a weird little festival you know because it was very much like my little pet project and there was not a whole lot of like strategy or anything that went into it but it was early you know so like other than Fantasia it was the only genre film festival in Canada at the time. And it was the only one that was really horror-centric, you know, because Fantasia was not horror-centric. They started, actually, as an Asian festival. And it wasn't, it was, like, in their second year when they branched out and got uh, more international titles and stuff. Um, but when it was founded, it was intended to be an Asian film festival. Um, and so a big part of their programming is still, it's still like 50% Asian programming, you know? So my festival was still very different in terms of, uh, you know, there was a strong retrospective focus, you know, like I, I didn't necessarily, like I always tried to get like a third of the movies, new films, but two thirds were definitely old, older titles. And now there's like a million festivals, you know? So it's kind of like, I feel as though if my festival was competing like in the festival landscape now, nobody would give me any movie because it was too small, you know? It was only because there really wasn't as much competition. There weren't as many people asking for those movies, so I would get them even though I had a small festival. Now, speaking of festivals, you already mentioned that you pivoted and went to work for Draft House, or Alamo Draft House, I should say. You were one of the original programmers for Fantastic Fest, which is now a huge festival. What was it like being on the ground floor as that was being built? Well, it was kind of funny because, like, at that time, it was... So the South Lamar Theater had opened, and so our offices had moved into that theater. So even though I didn't program for South Lamar because it was the it was a multiplex theater, they played first run. Um, so I still programmed for the downtown theater, but we are we worked our office was at the South Lamar Theater and I remember like when I had first come to Austin like one of the very first like within two months of being there Tim wanted to do a a Cinemuerte there in Austin he wanted me to like put on a Cinemuerte festival but he didn't want to put any money into it you know I was just like he didn't want guests he didn't want like the printed program he didn't and I was just like well it's not Cinemuerte if if I just pick like five movies uh, that were, and, and they're playing in random time slots throughout the week, you know, like the whole idea of a festival is like, it should be all at once. And it's like, it, you kind of blow your wad at this one event, you know, you spend your advertising money, you make the printed program, you make the t-shirts, you make the, it's like everything. It's a big event. And he was not 
at the time, he really didn't understand the whole festival thing. And so he was just like want, trying to put the movies in random slots, like Monday at nine and then Wednesday at six and then whatever, and then call it a festival. And I'm like, that is not a festival. And of course it flopped, didn't do well. And I didn't like it because I felt like it was, you know, using the name of my festival to do something that really was not representing what I did. But then when Fantastic Fest came around, the only reason I mentioned that story is because Tim would not have just started Fantastic Fest. He would not have put all that money in and all and like blocked out a whole week to do the festival and everything like that if it hadn't been for Paul Dykstra and Tim McCanley's. So they are the real founders of Fantastic Fest in terms of like they came in to the office and they were like, Tim, we have an idea and if it fails, we'll pay for it. And that was why Tim said yes, you know, was like, Tim probably would not have taken that risk, you know, the first year. It was just because, so they came in, Tim McCanley's had written a film called Secondhand Lions and maybe he had something to do with like Iron Giant or something. And, you know, so they offered to like pay for any losses as long as it could be actually done like a real festival. And so then Tim and, you know, they got Harry Knowles involved because Harry Knowles at the time was kind of like the conduit to a lot of the major studios. Like Alamo did not have the clout that it eventually had with the studios. So it was still always struggling to get the studios to give them movies, like even for first run and stuff. Whereas for whatever reason, because of Ain't It Cool News, all the studios really liked Harry Knowles. And so Harry Knowles was the person who kind of got the studios to give us titles. And then obviously because Tim had the venue and he had the staff and he had, you know, Tim just had all the pieces kind of came in under Alamo. And so it ended up becoming very much like just an Alamo owned event or whatever, or an Alamo run event, you know, and all the other partners who had like co-founded it with Tim became less and less involved like as the years went on with the festival. So all of us programmers there, all of us like just programmers at the Alamo, which were like me, Lars Nilsson, Zach Carlson, and to a certain extent, Henry Maza. Henry Maza did more like gonzo programming. So he would do kind of like weird live dating game events and like air guitar competitions. And he did all this like participatory type of programming more than like movies and stuff. And so I do think he was involved with Fantastic Fest like for special events, but for the films, it was really like me, Lars and Zach, Tim, and then Harry Knowles would bring in like a couple of studio movies, you know, and so the first year we were allowed, all of us programmers were given X amount of time slots. I think it was like six time slots or something. And we could pick whatever we wanted for our time slot, which I loved. And not a lot of festivals work that way. You know, like a lot of other festivals operate in this really collaborative way where everybody has to vote on the movie together. And, you know, so I liked this thing where it was just like every other programmer could hate my six movies, but it doesn't matter because I get to pick whatever I want for my slots, you know? And so that was how the first year went. And then Tim didn't like it, like it so much. And so then the second year he decided that we could still have our six slots, but he had to have veto power over what we picked. 
And then we got in a big fight over the movie Pop Skull because I wanted to play Pop Skull, which is like Adam Wingard's first movie. And nobody saw it. And everybody was just like, I mean, they saw it like they watched it. I just mean like nobody saw its potential, you know? So it was kind of like, and then eventually it came down to like where I told Tim, I will give you back my other five slots <laughs> if I get my, if I get one slot to play this movie. And he said, no, like he hated it that much. He later apologized. He came back. He's like, you were right. It's better than I thought, you know, but we got in this massive fight about it. And so that was the first time I quit Fantastic Fest <laughs> was over that. I have quit Fantastic Fest two or three times, I think. The other years I came back and did shorts. So, uh, yeah, so I only did. And, and again, like I liked that because people kind of left me alone. You know, like people, did, the other, the future programmers didn't meddle with the shorts programming you know and so it was kind of fun because when you put together a shorts program it feels a lot more curatorial than picking features for a festival because often you're picking new films and there's no connection between one feature and the next feature whereas when you're looking at shorts you're imagining this kind of landscape of this like 90 minute program and how all these films are going to feed into each other and fit together and so it's a really different process like creatively than programming features. Besides Fantastic Fest, you've created some other festivals, but this one kind of piqued my interest and it I think it would I think Nick would be into this too because it mixes or doesn't mix, it's a focus on I guess more current music, which is the which is what your online handle is named after. It's the big smash it's big smash music on film festival. How did that one come about? Yeah, so that was like when Cinemuerte ended, so my horror film festival I was still doing in Vancouver when I lived in Texas. So I moved down to Texas, but then I think for the last two years of the festival, I would plan it from afar and come up and do the festival. And that just seemed unsustainable to me. So I decided I was gonna end the festival, but programming is like a compulsion. So of course, like within like six months, I was just thinking of new festival ideas. And because I lived in Austin and it's such a big music town, um, I had, become kind of the music programmer at the Alamo. You know, they already had Lars doing Weird Wednesday, which is kind of like the cult and genre slot. And eventually there would also be Terror Thursday. I think it was originally Terror Tuesday and then it became Terror, Thir or vice versa. Maybe it was Terror Thursday first and became Terror Tuesday or something. But anyways, Zach Carlson joined the team and he got put in charge of that. And so even though like in other places I've been known as like the horror person at Alamo, I was more known as the music person. And so I ran a series there called Music Monday. That was my one time slot. Every Monday at nine o'clock was my slot. Nobody messed with what I picked. And, um, but because of that, I was being exposed to a lot of music documentaries and music themed films and stuff. And so, uh, I just had this idea to put a festival together for Vancouver that was all music films. And again, it was still a mix. It was like, although I would say it was much stronger on the new film side for that one. And then about a quarter retrospective titles. Um, and again, it was another small thing. You know, there was only a couple, two guests. It was like Reckless Eric, who's the, the name of the festival, Big Smash, is named after one of his records. And, um, and Paul Williams. So Paul Williams came to do Phantom of the Paradise and the Muppet movie it was like a matinee for kids. And Reckless Eric 
obviously has nothing really to do with film and there was not a movie about him or anything. It was just like, I was a fan of Reckless Eric. And again, it was like, I'm paying for it. I'm going to do what I want. So Reckless Eric was the guest and he was going to play live at the festival and he got to pick a movie. And so the movie he picked was uh, Sympathy for the Devil, the Rolling Stones movie. And um, he had to introduce it. And I'm trying to remember what he said. I don't think he had actually watched the movie for like a million years. And so he gave kind of like a rambling, incoherent introduction to it. But but, um, but the important thing to me was just like, I when I liked something, whether it was a movie or a band or whatever, was like, I wanted to show everyone else it, you know? like And so that was what a lot of programming was like for me was just like, sharing stuff I liked with other people and you know eventually I got out of that because I realized that I could really just stay home and watch stuff myself without spending all this money doing these events you know but for many many years it was kind of this compulsion that I really whenever I discovered something I always my first inclination was to share it with other people you know to like rent a theater and put on a festival or you know put on a special screening or whatever and so yeah that music festival was you know I'm trying to remember what we played it was like the the Ronnie Lane documentary the Rocky Erickson documentary whatever year that was so I played like all kinds of stuff from around that time and one of the most fun things was like Paul Williams we decided to have a tribute to Paul Williams and there was a local band in Vancouver is kind of a novelty band called July 4th Toilet. And uh, my friend Rob Dayton was in this band. He's the singer. And they came out and did... Their first song was like The Boy in the Plastic Bubble and he came out all like wrapped and bubble wrap. And at a certain point they... um, And I think it was actually during that song. So Paul Williams, I had a table for him like right up at the front. And Paul Williams is sitting there and they're doing The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. And Paul's just got his head in his hands, you know? He's like covering his face and he's like at this table. And I'm looking at him thinking, oh my God, like I've just put him in a really uncomfortable position. He's like right at the front of the room, right in front of the stage. He hates this music and it's killing him and he doesn't know how to get out of this situation. And, And I started feeling horribly guilty. And then the song ended. And he pulled his hands away from his face and stood up and he was like crying. He was laughing so hard and he gave them like a standing ovation. (laughs) (laughs) And the band ended up singing like Dangerous Business from Ishtar and he got up on stage and joined them for it. And my friend Rob was at the time an alcoholic and because Paul Williams is like like an AA counselor, he became, he told Rob, he's like, anytime you want to call me, you can call me. And so he, he began a friendship with Rob and Rob stopped drinking right then and there at that festival because of Paul Williams. It was a small, insignificant festival to most people, but I think of that event and the impact it had on my friend's life. And so, and I feel like it was important for that reason. Now, specifically with programming, because there's a lot of different philosophies and styles and ways you can do it like do you have a specific way you look at when you program say just you know be it you know programming like a series for a theater or a festival or do you just have any kind of you know ideology philosophy or do you just kind of just go off the need of like this is something i like and i just have to show it i mean for the most part it's like i I, it's like 
personal indulgence, you know, like I like this thing, I want to share it. But then as I started working for the Alamo, you know, you're dealing with other people's money. It's not your, my own money. So you have to also start thinking about balancing it, you know? So it's kind of like, I want to play this movie that nobody's heard about that probably five people are going to come to, but it means a lot to me to play it. So if I want to get away with playing that, I need to play something else that's going to be more popular and make money. And, you know, so I don't, I didn't do like double bills and stuff because my time slots were often like nine o'clock already, you know, so I would do like in my, in a, in a calendar, I would have like one, like we often didn't have money for studio bookings for this Music Monday series I did. It was a discount series. It was a dollar to get in. So that was the other challenge was I somehow had to like be programming movies with no budget to pay for them. And so I ended up booking a studio picture like or like a known film once a, once a month, you know, and the other four films were allowed to be more rogue, you know. And uh, but then I also started making things myself to save money. People would say I would say to people, what do you want to see a movie about? And they'd be like, the Smiths. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to make one. And so then I would just get all this footage, whatever I could of the Smiths. And this was like before YouTube, you know, existed or it may have existed, but it was not widely used by people, you know? So it was not the, it's not like it is now where you can Google, like look up anything and find the video, you know? And so, so I made like a Krautrock one. I made a Lee Hazelwood one. It was like, where I just got like tons and tons of archival footage of like videos, promotional films, TV appearances, like interviews, whatever. And I would edit it all into something resembling a documentary. And then I would either like narrate it or I would make intertitles, explanatory intertitles <laughs> to explain the connections between things. So they'd be like structured like documentaries, but there would be no new footage shot for them it would be ex entirely structured out of existing footage and so I would do that I started doing that to save money so I had like once a calendar I would have a studio picture that was like you know stop making sense or something like that and then once a calendar I'd also have like these things we called Alamo originals where it was just like me making some movie out of like whatever was in my collection and then in the middle of that would be independent films where it would just be you know, whoever making an independent film about a certain musician, you know, and sometimes we'd get more anticipated ones, like for example, like the Graham Parsons documentary or something, you know, so there would be certain ones that would be independent films, but they still had definitely had like a following, like the person that the movie was about had a following, but then there would just be like weirdo things like where I got Tommy White, who was a cast member the first year of the show Zoom like the WGBH kids show Zoom, which was semi-musical, you know, but I, so I had him come out and do this like Zoom related, like um, live performance slash presentation type thing. And that was like one of my favorite things we ever did, but it was also like the kind of thing where Tim League would have just been like, what the hell is that? You know, it was just because you're dealing with other people's money. And I think also because of being a programmer independently and having to pay for things, I had a very real sense of what it was like to lose that money, you know? And so it was much easier to be cautious with other people's money 
for me, I think, than it is for like a young programmer. Like, like there's, there's a lot of young programmers who just like, I went to school for programming and I want to be a programmer because I want to pick all the movies, you know, and they have no sense of that things cost money and that you have to be accountable for what's on screen and you have to be accountable for like, you know, not losing your boss a bunch of money or you're going to get fired. Like, it's not like you just it's really weird the way that a lot of people look at programming. They just think it's like, well, I have good taste in movies. I, I want to pick the movies. And they think that's all there is to film programming, you know? And it's like a lot of it is really like looking at numbers and weighing your audience and paying attention to demographics and, and building relationships. And there's so much other stuff that's part of your job as a programmer that is not just having good taste in movies, you know? I was going to say, a lot of film programmers have like something they're interested in that is unique to them. And I don't know if this is exactly your favorite kind of like subgenre, but I know you really like airport and um, airline movies. Could you talk about like what about those films have drawn you into them? Well, I think like, you know, I became interested in just vintage airline culture and stuff and so naturally movies about airlines or set at airports and things like that in part because like I traveled a lot starting really young in my life you know like my parents divorced early and so we were on you know me and my brother would be put on a plane three times a year to go visit my dad and this was back when like I don't know if people do this anymore but we would just get dropped off at the airport like me I would be like three my brother was six and they would just drop us at the airport and the stewardesses would take us to the gate and they would take care of us the whole time on the plane until we got to the other end and then our dad would pick us up you know so we flew on our own like three times a year um and then sometimes we would go you know my dad had a girlfriend in new york or whatever and so then we would fly like pan am or something you know and we'd fly like these like deluxe airlines and it was just kind of like i lived i i, I i'm old enough to like remember a totally different era of flying you know and so and i saw that change in the early 80s and stuff you know and so I, I just always had this kind of nostalgia for what air travel was like when I was a kid. And so, yeah, I just became interested in airline movies. And <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, like, if that's like enough of a reason for me to like them so much. But like, I collect even like swizzle sticks and stuff from like defunct airlines and things. I would love to make an airline related movie, but... Yeah, that would be expensive. <laughs> Has anyone done a feature-length documentary on airline films? I don't think so. I mean, there's definitely documentaries that are like TV length, like an hour that are not on airline films, but that are on like airline nostalgia and like stewardesses and, you know, how fancy airplanes used to look and stuff like that, you know. So there's definitely like TV type documentaries on that kind of thing often they'll be focused on like a specific airline like there's way tons of pan am stuff you know like pan am is definitely like the most popular airline so there's tons of uh youtube videos books like just every memoirs of pan am stewardesses like all kinds of stuff like that but the on the severin films release of the, like the al adamson box set there's uh 
you know, there's like a trio of stewardess movies on that set. And so I asked David if he would let me make a little featurette for that. And so there is like a 30 minute thing or something that I made for that disc that is kind of like a little documentary about the airline movie. It's it's really about the role of the stewardess more than anything else. It's like the role of the stewardess as like a cultural icon as seen through these movies, as seen through advertisements and stuff like that. I find the stewardess to be a really interesting character. I know you're not supposed to say stewardess anymore, but I still do because I'm old. But yeah, I mean, they're just like really interesting because it was, you know, people look at certain certain uh, careers like that especially because the way that stewardesses were so objectified and stuff like that people look at it like it's um they don't see the feminist possibility in a job like that you know but it's just like at the time it was like one of the few jobs like women had where you could be traveling by yourself around the world without a chaperone without a parent you know without being married without anybody even wondering why you weren't married because you weren't even allowed to be married to be a stewardess you know so it was like the longer you could stay single the longer you would have a career as a stewardess so like there was all these women that would just like get to see the world they would get to do all kinds of things that um, I mean, it was a very deliberate choice. Like they wanted to live an independent life, you know? And so uh, they had to put up with a certain amount of garbage, you know, from the advertising campaigns and stuff like that. But they also were the first people to get a ban on workplace smoking, you know? It was like they had very early unions. And I mean, there's there's just a lot of interesting history there. And so, uh, yeah, it's just something I'm really fascinated with. And of course, it's hard not to be when you look back at the old pictures of the piano bars and everything that would be like the lounges and everything in these old planes. I got to see stuff like that. I got to fly on planes like that, you know? So, yeah, so I'm just really nostalgic. Now, I can't remember which film it was, but you told me a while back about a screening of one of the airport films that you won the screen, but it ended up being, I think, an Italian print and you had to dub it live. Could you talk about that experience or that screening? Yeah, so it was the first airport movie, uh, which is a long movie. It's like, it's over two hours anyway. And I had this little theater in in um, Vancouver. It was a very ill-fated project called The Criminal Cinema. And it was uh, me and my boss at the video store, Darren Gay. The, the, the video store is called Black Dog Video and it still exists. But so me and Darren and then our other friend, David Witten, who had been a distributor in the States and had since moved to Vancouver. The three of us wanted to open a theater. And of course we had limited money. And so we tried to make a deal with this porno theater. There was a 35 millimeter porno theater called the Fox Theater. And it was the last 35 millimeter porno theater in North America, actually. And so they were still running film. And at the time that, you know, that was what I wanted to run. I wanted to have a rep theater and have it be focused on 35 millimeter. And it was just like a pit, like this place was disgusting inside the booth, like the projectors had just like never been cleaned ever. The booth was a disaster. Like the splicers were all dull and useless and so it just seemed like films got ruined just being projected there you know but there was like a like a couple that owned the theater and they were very suspicious of us and we tried to make a deal with them where we would book the theater from them on for friday saturday and sunday so they had the theater four days a week we had the theater three days a week and we paid a ridiculous amount of rent 
because we didn't know any better. We didn't know what a normal rent was, you know. And our partner, David Witten, because he was much older than us and he had been a distributor in the 70s for the Hallmark chains. So he worked for Hallmark. And so his idea of what kind of rentals, what kind of revenues you make and what you pay for rent was just light years away from the reality of like 2002 or whenever this was that we did this theater project. And so he was just like, and me and Darren were like, oh, that seems like a lot of rent, you know, like uh, that doesn't seem feasible. And David's like, oh, if you can't, if you can't pay that much rent, you should just not even think of opening a theater. That's like so easy to make that much money, you know? And we were just like, okay. So we kind of deferred to him because he was the more experienced one. So our first challenge was we had to clean the theater, you know, like we had to make the theater, uh, a place where our customers would sit and watch a movie and it was difficult because the whole place reeked like piss and there were like bloody condoms and stuff on the ground in the theater and like just <laughs> underwear, you know, random underwear we would find. Like it was just really gross in there. And, and weirdly, it was like the two guys I worked with would always like, think I was like a prude because I was always trying to think of ways to cover the seats. I was like, we should give people garbage bags or something so they can put them on the seat to sit on the seat. And they'd be like, oh, you're a prude or whatever. But it's like, but neither of them cleaned the theater. I cleaned everything myself, you know? So like, I'm the one picking up the condoms and stuff and cleaning the bathroom and just bleh. So, but all that said, I loved that place. I loved it. I loved like just running around in this like dirty old porno theater and being like, this is my theater. Like I run this theater, you know? And I loved it. And I got like a big mural of Scott Bayo painted in the girl's bathroom. And this was before I knew that he was like a gross Republican and stuff. But like, you know, so I'm still thinking like Chachi. And so I'm like, so I got this big mural of him painted on the wall. And we opened with like Meet the Feebles or something because that was our partner, David. That was one of the films that he distributed. So he had a 35 millimeter print of that. He also had Mark of the Devil. And I remember we completely trashed the print of Mark of the Devil, putting it through that projector. Like it just came out black. <laughs> like it came out of the projector completely black and he had to get it like professionally cleaned. But yeah, it was, it was horrible on the prints. You know, it just wrecked everything that went through it. But getting back to airport. So I booked a weekend where it was like all the airport movies. So it was like all every airport movie and then airplane, you know, at midnight or whatever. And so this was gonna, this was, I guess it was like a Saturday marathon or something. And back then it was like when, when you're getting 35 millimeter prints, like they don't send them like two weeks in advance or whatever. They send them like a few days in advance, you know? And so we get this print in it's like three days before the screening and it's like this print is in Italian. So I called them back and I said, oh, you sent us the wrong print. You sent us an Italian print. And they were just like, oh, well, that's the only print we have. And I was like, well, wh how is that even possible? Why would you even have an Italian print? And they were just like, well, we have one print of airport and that's it. You've got it, you know? And there was no video capabilities at this place. They have no project video projector. It's just film, right? So... I'm like, okay, so we're going to have to do a live dub of this movie. We're going to have to get our friends and we're going to have to do the voices somehow. So I rented a PA 
And I was like, we're going to have to, you know, have the volume of the PA like louder than the movie so they can hear the dialogue. But this was before, you know, the internet and everything being big. So it was like the internet existed and I could tell from, you know, you could look things up and there were uh, scripts for airport that you could buy, but they were not digital. You had to like buy them and they mail it to you, you know? So there was no like PDF scripts and places where you would buy PDF scripts. And so we couldn't get a script of airport within two days. So I had to watch airport on VHS at my house and I had to write by hand all the dialogue from airport. Like I had to write a script by hand. It took 36 hours. Like it was insane. I believe I split some of that work with my friend Kelly. So I think he watched part of the film and I watched part of the film to do it so that we could get it done on time. And so then we had to write this all out. Then I had to type it all in. And then I had to like make scripts for everybody. I had six people. I did Helen Hayes's voice. (laughs) And my friend Kelly did, I think it was either... Dean Martin and Burt Lancaster. I think it was Dean Martin and Burt Lancaster. And he did both their voices, but he did both their voices the same. <laughs> so you couldn't tell who was talking, like whenever they were, had a scene together. And I kept like elbowing him to try to get him to do like a different voice for one of them. But, <laughs> you know, so it's like the whole time we're doing this, there's like six of us in the back of the theater. Only five people came to the movie. So there's more of us doing the voices than there were people in the theater watching the movie. And they are laughing their heads off, the five people, because this is just a shit show, you know? And so it's like six of us at the back doing the voices. And I'm like Helen Hayes, like the old lady stowaway on the plane. And like, just we're all like elbowing each other because everybody's like missing their lines and whatever and it was just ridiculous so we're at the back of the theater sitting on top of like an old desk with a lamp you know like lighting our scripts and so we're like looking at the script looking at the screen like looking back up and down you know like trying to make sure we're in the right spot and it was just yeah it was ridiculous you know but we knew like three days before the screening or whatever that we were gonna have to do this and so then we had posters made by our friend Eliza Navari who that, that plugged this idea that we were going to be doing a live translation. So the five people who were there, that was the only reason they were even there. Like if we had actually played just airport without that, we would have had nobody there, you know? So, but that's what it was like. I mean, we played movies at this place. There, there would be sometimes, I played Rude Boy, I think, like the Clash movie. And no, not a single person came. And so I just sat in the theater. And same with like Border Radio. We paid a 35 millimeter print of Border Radio. Nobody came. And I sat in the theater by myself in this old Porto theater watching Border Radio, you know. And, but I loved that. I, because I still felt proud of it, even though we did everything wrong, you know, like, but I still, it was still, it still felt very special. I mean, it's still amazing. I remember the time at the Egyptian, and this was maybe a couple years ago, that we got sent a Italian, an Italian print of um, the Betty Davis movie, The Star. And no one had checked it beforehand, because that's this is something that happens, because you get a lot of prints, and we have Union Projectionists, which is, again, another cost. So no one's checking the first reel of every print, unless it's like a specific festival or something, or someone else fit in the bill. So I remember seeing the print start, and I saw the title cards were in Italian. And I was like, 
you know, maybe they lost the original title cards and they spliced it in. I've seen this before on other archival prints because it happens. I I think I showed Fulci's The Black Cat for January Giallo the last time I did it in theater, January Giallo, and, like, all the credits were in Spanish, and I was like, oh, fuck, please, 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 please be a splice in there and go to English. And I heard a little pop, and that was fine. This, not so much. Betty Davis opens her mouth, it's in Italian. So we had, we had to stop the movie because there was... I. I couldn't dub Betty Davis. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was like you just played it and you had to stop it and then what, like give people refunds or something? We had a refund. I think that was during, we were doing a Betty and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford like thing because um that fucking TV show had just come out at the time. And I, for some reason we had like a disaster every single night. It was that. Then we had rolling blackouts one night during um All About Eve. It, it was a weird thing. I, I don't know if they were just mad because they had to share the screen again or something like that. The, the only movie that played fine was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But uh, Before we close out on talking about programming, is programming something that still interests you? I don't do programming really anymore. I, I would say I haven't really done programming for a few years now. I was almost thinking I should probably take it off of my... Like under my name where it's like writer, whatever, you know, like I feel like I should probably take programmer off because I haven't done it in a few years. I definitely feel less inclined to do it, you know, like I, I feel as though it may be because movies are so accessible now, you know, like that I don't get that thrill of really like playing things for people where... 90% of the audience has never heard of it or never seen it and it's going to be their new favorite movie or whatever. Like, I feel as though, you know, now somebody can mention a movie to me that I've never heard of and I can just go bloop, bloop, bloop on the internet and I have that movie in 10 minutes, you know? <laughs> and and uh, I feel like for a lot of people it's like that. And so it's hard as a programmer to keep your motivation especially when there's so many costs associated with it you know when there seem to be all these obstacles in the way of like people actually coming out and supporting stuff and you know I had a good run I did programming for 20 years maybe more than 20 years and I also felt like I was definitely not on top of stuff the way I used to be when I was younger, you know? Like I noticed when I was younger and there were certain programmers I looked up to and then they would get to be a certain age and I realized that they started kind of repeating themselves, you know, recycling content and stuff like that. And I realized that I've, I felt like I was doing the same thing. I would be like, oh, I remember that great screening I had. I want to do that again or whatever, you know? And I was like, oh, it's time to quit. I'm like getting old and repeating myself. So I feel as though, yeah, there's like a lot of other programmers that are kind of carrying the torch and have a lot more energy and less, um, less baggage than me about all the problems that can happen, you know? So they're more enthusiastic because they don't know, they haven't gone through like everything going wrong for 20 years, uh, which wears you down, you know? And so, yeah, so I'm not as driven to do it anymore, I'd say. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here, but when we return, we're going to be talking about something that you're still quite prolific at here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. An ABC special presentation. Air Force, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Jacqueline Bissett, George Kennedy, Helen Hayes. Oh, 
Ralph Hunter's powerful movie, Airport. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking to Kayla Janice first about her new movie, and then about her film programming career. Now we're going to talk about another facet or wrinkle in her, I guess many, many talents and skills. We're going to be talking about her writing. And how did you end up starting writing? I know you talked about your zine early on, but when did it move into more of like a bigger picture thing for you? I would say like, so I started my zine in like 1997. And in 99 was the first year I started my festival. And because of the festival, like I did the festival in july and then immediately afterwards i went to montreal and i went to the fantasia film festival for the first time and so this was the first time i'd ever been at a festival with like other horror fans and like other programmers and like my my people you know like i'd never met people who did the same thing as me and had the same interests as me and stuff and so i met um tony timpone and mike gingold from fangoria at that festival and they hired me to do like because I lived in Vancouver they were like oh we always need people to do set visits in Vancouver and I was like okay I didn't even know what a set visit was and um I hated doing them um but they would give me these assignments to go on the set of you know I guess Willard was the best one that because I got to talk to Crispin Glover and he gave me all his books and stuff like that (laughs) So, sorry, I, I've i had that Crispin Glover experience, but sorry. <laughs> you know, but ultimately I was interested in his books a lot. And so the interview went well because he liked that. He liked talking about his books and his other stuff, you know. That was probably the most interesting one I did, but there was just like lots of stuff where I just hated doing them. I hate, like nothing would happen. You know, you'd be there for the whole day and... They would just be doing the same scene over and over and over again for the whole day. And it would just be like a dialogue scene or whatever. And then I'm supposed to write like a, an article about this. And I remember once going to one of the Texas Chainsaw ones, like the remakes, and uh, getting in shit because my whole article was about the wallpaper in the set. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, but honestly, the wallpaper was the coolest thing that I saw. So- <laughs> and Gingold was like... You need to talk about, like, I don't know, special effects or something. And I was like, they didn't do any special effects when I was there. It was just, so I was just me looking around at the production design. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting crocheted doily or whatever, you know. It was sometimes hard to, like, summon the proper enthusiasm to do these set visits. Uh, And often the people that you interview would be so condescending, you know, like, just like, like, sl- you know, they think they're slumming it doing a horror movie or whatever. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, uh, 
it felt degrading and like the most, the best thing about it was the craft services truck, you know, just hanging out and eating nonstop junk food in between, you know, interviews or whatever. But that was really, that was so, that was the first time I got paid to write stuff, you know? So it was like, I did my zine and it's just free, it's a hobby. But then really early into that, I got paid for the first time. And as soon as you get paid as a writer, you are a professional writer, you know? So I became a professional writer in 1999 and then never looked back. I've almost never done anything free since then because I'm very against it. I hate people who write for free <laughs> unless it's for their own thing. Like if it's for their own website or their own blog or their own zine or, or their own like publishing imprint or whatever. But I'm just like, why write for free to support someone else's brand? Because it's like, if you are a publisher or a magazine or whatever, then paying writers has to be in your business model. If it's not in your business model, then you're in the wrong business. You should not be in that business. You know, you should be in some other business, but like, so it's ridiculous to me that there's like all these magazines and stuff that just want free writing from people and people do it. And it's, and the problem with people doing it is it fucks up the whole creative economy, you know, because then it like, undermines it's the same thing with like commentaries and stuff on discs you know like there's a lot of people who do it for free and then it makes it so that you know shout factory wants to give offer me a job and they want to give me a hundred dollars you know to do a commentary and it's like no um but they're just like okay well so and so will do it for free so um anyway and that's that's my rant about people working for free but um but yeah so i started writing for Fango then, and I would do it like intermittently. And, and then I, and I met Harvey Fenton from Fab Press at the Fantasia Film Festival. And he, you know, was a publisher. He did all kinds of cool movie books and he had done Flesh and Blood magazine. And, and, uh, I don't know if like he, I, so Eyeball was like Steve Thrower's zine separate from Fab. So Fab Press did a book compendium of Eyeball magazine, but Eyeball existed independently on its own. But, um, but yeah, so, so Harvey just did lots of cool weirdo stuff. And so I told him that I wanted to do a book about Luciana Rossi. And he was like, nobody's going to buy that book. You know, like nobody's going to buy a book about that guy. Nobody knows who he is. And, uh, so he didn't want to do it. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to publish it myself. And so then I was working in Texas by that point, And I got Rob Jones, who was a designer friend of mine, who now anybody who collects Mondo posters and all that stuff, everybody knows who Rob Jones is. At the time, he was mostly known for gig posters, doing like tons of white stripes campaigns and stuff. But so he did the layout for my Luciana Rossi book. And so I had, I was paying him a flat amount of money and then I was going to lay it out or get it, um, printed. And I sent some of the pages to Harvey just to show him that I was like doing it anyway. I was like, Hey, check out my pages for my book. I'm going to print it. And he actually, that, that was what made him want to print it was like, he saw Rob Jones's design and was like, Oh, that I can sell. He was like, nobody's still going to know who Luciana Rossi is and nobody cares about Luciana Rossi, but this is a beautiful book and I can, you know, this makes me more excited about doing it. So then he decided that he was going to, 
publish it as part of this kind of smaller format series that he was trying to do that was like some kind of fab press essential books similar to like kind of like the bfi and the afi like monographs and stuff except that his you know he had one about like japanese cinema and then he had my book and i there may have been one other one it was a very short-lived series and there was no kind of continuity between what would, what the books would be. So yeah, it didn't last very long, but because it was the first small format thing he did, Fab Press is kind of known for doing more large format books, you know, like coffee table sized books and stuff. Yeah. So then I had my first book, you know, was that, and it really is fluff, you know, I mean, it really is not a significant book at all. The, the most significant thing about it is really just that it's about this actor that other people didn't know anything about. And so it documents his roles and that's important for what it is. But the writing itself is is literally just like zine level writing, you know, fluff. It's not critical, especially or anything. It's just kind of like, and, and actually like I rate all the movies. I have a rating system for all the movies. It's like stars for how much screen time he has. So it's like, I don't rate the movies for how good the movie is. I only rate it by how much Luciana Rossi is in the movie. And then hearts for how cute Luciana Rossi is in the movie. So every movie has a star rating and a heart rating. And I thought for sure, like everybody would just make fun of me for this, like all the male fans, because most of the fans of like the spaghetti Westerns and Euro crime films that I knew of at that time were male. And I thought for sure, this book is just going to get blasted on all the forums and stuff because of my little hearts. And instead it was the opposite. Everybody thought it was hilarious and adorable, you know, that I had rated the movies with hearts. So... <laughs> So it worked out okay, but still nobody bought it, you know, except like, I think 700 people bought it, which is still pretty good though, actually, for a small press thing. But for Harvey Fenton, he just was like, that's abysmal, you know? So for him, that was like low sales. But I was going to say, like, he's an interesting actor. It's like he was in everything from The Conformist, Salon Kitty, tons of Django knockoffs, a couple Giallos, a lot of Eurocrime, so... I mean, I like that book because it's just kind of reference because, like, I I like character actors and I like bit part actors. It's, like, one of my favorite actors of all time is Dick Miller, who basically more or less had, like, a scene in a lot of movies, and that was it. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Good. Now, after this book, in 2012, you released what I and a lot more esteemed people consider one of the greatest and most important film books ever written. And I'm not overselling it. I think this is one of the most important film books. And if you haven't read it, pause the podcast, start reading it, come back, listen to the rest of this podcast, because it is an essential film book. And, of course, we're talking about House of Psychotic Women. Could you tell us how this project came about? It was probably like a decade between when I first started thinking about it and, and working on it and when I actually finished it. And... That is really, it, it, it all started, I think, because of two things. One was like my friend Sam McKinley, who was my movie buddy in Vancouver that I used to like pal around with every day watching genre films and stuff. And he, there were certain types of movies that he would always call like a Janice special, you know, and they were always these movies with these crazy broads in them, you know. And then same thing, like I worked at this video store and customers would say to me, like they would, you know, they'd ask for movie 
recommendations all the time. And then I would have customers say to me, every movie you recommend to me has some crazy woman in it. And I was like, really? And so kind of between those two things, I started thinking, oh, that's funny. I really am drawn to those kind of movies. You know, why is that? And so I decided that I was going to do a book. And I think the title House of Psychotic Women came very early on. I think it was literally like, I know what I'll call it, you know. And it was just going to be a book of like 10 essays. So it was just going to be a collection of essays. And it was going to be kind of like some stuff I'd already written in my zine, but probably edited to fix it up, which, which, you know, some of the writing in House of Psychotic Women does have an origin in my zine. And then like a bunch of new essays, you know, but it was really just going to be this very limited thing where I was going to pick like 10 movies or something and do like 10 essays about these movies. And this is like, I was still living in Vancouver. And so a lot of changes were happening in my life. And so, you know, I sort of got married and divorced and then opened this theater that failed like three months later. And then I moved to Austin. And so there was a lot of like really major changes, you know? And so anytime I would start a personal project like that, it was constantly getting shuffled, you know, to the back burner or whatever, because I just wasn't having the time to deal with it. Then I moved to Austin and, you know, went through another big spate of, of working on it again. And, but I kept work, like redoing the structure, revisiting the structure. I could not figure out, you know, like how I wanted to tell the story, you know, like I decided at a certain point that I definitely didn't want it to be just the 10 essays because I felt like in the interim, internet writing and blog writing had really exploded. And so there were actually like tons of blogs that had really critical and insightful writing on, you know, some of these films. And I just was like, well, I don't want to do a book that's just a bunch of essays because then what's the difference between my book and the writing that already exists online, you know? And so I kept sort of working on it and then I would not work on it for like a year, you know, and then I'd work on it again six months later. And so I was constantly like writing notes and I had just tons and tons and tons of notes. Then I think I moved to Winnipeg in like 2007 and, you know, I had a couple friends there. One was Calum Vattenstall, who speaking of Dick Miller, wrote a book about Dick Miller. Uh, also wrote a book about Canadian horror films called They Came From Within. And my other friend, Matthew Rankin, who was a filmmaker, uh, most recently made that movie, The 20th Century. I don't know if you've seen it. It's amazing. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm aware of it. But the two of them had told me, like, independently of each other, you know, like, why don't you write about it from a personal perspective? You know, like, in terms of, like, why you're interested in these kind of movies or whatever. And I really fought against that because I was just like, who cares? Like, who cares why about my life or my... Like, I just thought I'm not a famous person, so, like, why... That just seems really gross and self-indulgent to, like, write this book that's all about me and my psyche and whatever. Um, And so I really didn't want to do that because I just thought that would be lame. But I decided to sort of give it a try. And I realized that once I started writing it like that, it just went fast. Like it just started going a lot faster. And because, yeah, when you're writing about your own life, you don't have to constantly keep checking 
reference books to make sure you got the facts right and all that stuff. I mean, because you're really, you're just calling shit out of your memory and your own head and your own experience and nobody can tell you it's wrong or anything. So all the second guessing that you often do in writing, you know, it wasn't there. It just sort of like just flowed out. And, you know, it still took several more years for it to be done, partially because I then wanted to revisit every single movie I had kept notes on all these years. You know, I, I wanted to watch them all fresh. And I think there's maybe 100 movies or 200 movies that are covered in the book. You know, so that was a lot of watching that I had to do again. So it still took a couple more years after that. I sent the rough draft to Harvey Fenton, who had tentatively agreed to publish it based on the concept and the title. You know, he liked the title and he thought, you know, any book that like lists a whole bunch of movies for people to buy like a shopping list does well for him, you know? So, so based on the concept and the title, he was sold on the idea, but I still had to like, he didn't know that I was going to be writing all this personal stuff in the book. And so I sent it to him and I was like, well, here it is. And you know, no worries if this is not what you want at all. I, I get that it's totally different from what we talked about, you know, and it, and I sent it to him and he, he emailed me like right away, like the next day or something saying that he had read the first four chapters already. And he was just like, absolutely. He's like, I'm absolutely going to publish this. This is going to change. This is going to be a game changing book. And, and I was just like, what? Come on, you know? And, uh, but he was like really excited about it. And I was like, okay, you know, and, but still, you know, still as with the Rossi book, I was worried that people would mock it because it was so candid about my own life and my own problems and all that stuff. So I totally was like ready for people to hate it and for all the reviews to be bad and for people to make fun of me because like often with my festival, people would make fun of the programming because they'd be like, oh, well, I'll have a good cry at the Cinemuerte Festival, <laughs> you know, because I would often play movies that were just like bleak and depressing more than like horrific. And, uh, and so some people would like make fun of me for my programming. And so I just expected that it would be like, that would be the response to this book. And again, just completely shocked that that wasn't the response and that people liked it and people were just like, you know, this is so weird because these are exactly the kind of movies I like too. You know, like there was like, it just be, it just created this like umbrella for a certain type of film that there were a lot of people that just realized like, yeah, not only do I love those kind of films too, but I tend to look at m movies autobiographically as well. You know, like a lot of other people were like, I look at movies that way too, you know, and I hadn't, hadn't thought about it or whatever. Yeah. So it was, so that just worked out well. And then because I had a film programming background, I mean, this changed things for Fab Press a little bit too, like in terms of their model of how they do things, because I had a programming background, I like booked book launches into all these theaters, you know, like I contacted all these other programmers I knew and was like, I have this book and it's got 200 movies in it. You can pick as, you know, whatever movies you want from the book and we can do a book launch. And a lot of people didn't just pick one movie. They actually would do like 12 movies or something, you know, like a retrospective. And so I was traveling around doing book launches with it, like all over the world, you know? And so Fab does try to do more of that type of thing now they also frequently now pre-sell their books with um indiegogo or kickstarter or stuff like that like they'll pre-sell 
special editions and stuff like that. And that is something like I learned everything about publishing from Harvey, but then I feel like Harvey got some tricks from me too, which kind of came more from the film programming world. But yeah, so that was how House of Psychotic Women came about. And I'm going to say in it was a game changer because just like you said, people were now programming based off that book because you, I don't want to say, I think all those films were connected and you were able to articulate the connection. In essence, you basically ushered in a subgenre, which not a lot of people do. Like a lot of people can sit around for years, like talking about certain movies, but you basically corralled all these like wonderful yet very depressing and sometimes <laughs> quite sad and devastating movies and gave them a home together. It might be a sad home, but it's a it's a lovely sad home. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a it's and it's a similar thing actually we were talking about folk horror before. I mean the term folk horror has been kind of the same thing where it's been this umbrella where all these things that that really do make sense that they're part of the same conversation, but people didn't really look at them as part of the same conversation before. And now that there is this term folk horror, people are like, oh yeah, I can see how this connects to that. And with House of Psychotic Women, I mean, I have heard people refer to these types of movies as psychotic women movies now, which I'm assuming is from the book, you know, because I also stretch the boundaries of genre in the book, you know, because like I had to really try to hard to not include things like women under the influence and stuff. I was like certain movies. I was just like, I felt like they would totally fit, but at the same time it says horror and exploitation movies on the cover, you know, it's like, so I couldn't include certain movies, but then there were movies like persona that had been very influential on so many horror movies that it made sense for it to be talked about, you know? And so there are certain movies in there that are not horror movies that are either movies that were influential on other horror movies or movies that were just influential to me personally during like the period that I was going through. So there's like a whole section of the book dealing with kind of teen delinquent films that are like not horror movies at all, but that those movies relate much more to like my personal trajectory in the book. You know, there were already like paranoid woman films in the forties, you know, and I don't know if the, you know, they were called women's pictures, but I don't, and I don't know if, um, I don't know exactly when the term paranoid woman film came into popular usage. I don't know if it's something like from the time or if it's something that was applied uh, retroactively, you know, but there were certainly like these types of movies that existed. There were certainly like film marketers and stuff that saw these connections of like that the, a movie of a woman having a mental breakdown or whatever is a type of movie, you know, like that predates me writing my book by many decades, you know? So people definitely knew about that, but they also weren't talking about Rebecca in the same conversations as necromantic, you know? Or sorry, necromantic too, more likely. But, you know, it was like certain movies were not being connected, you know? And so I, and, and so I feel that's the thing that my book did was that it kind of brought more films into the into that playing field to be discussed together as they as though they have this thing in common um but also because i didn't come from the academic world i came from the like street level horror world so i just knew way more films than a lot of people who write more academic books on these types of things you know so there have definitely been books on some of the things that I have chapters about in my book. So there are there are definitely books about the monstrous mother, you know, there's 
books about like crazy alcoholic women you know there's like books about all these specific types of things but it often seems like in many of these books the films they discuss tend to be some of the most mainstream or popular or known movies so they have like all this amazing insight but their examples are often really typical examples you know and so that was one of the differences with my book is it just had like all these weirdo movies being talked about in the same breath as really classic movies, you know. I was going to say, you mentioned Rebecca and Necromantic too. I mean, they're both essentially movies about necrophilia, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, just handled slightly different for their eras. The The book is, you know, it's been going on nine years since the first pressing. What are your thoughts on the book now if, as you've looked back over the success and, you know, the opportunities it has brought you. Well, I definitely think that my relationship with women changed a lot because of the book. You know, I, I talk a lot in the book about my suspicion of other women and the problems that I've had with other women being crazy. You know, like I think I say right in the intro, like every woman I've ever met is crazy, you know? And, uh, and I still think that, I still think that like women are much more intense creatures, you know, but I appreciate women more now, I think, after writing that book, because it really meant a lot to me to have so many women come up to me and talk to me at like book launches and screenings and people who've emailed me or written to me and talked to me about the book and told me about their lives and stuff like that. And it was just kind of amazing because for, I just never had that many female friends and I was never good with women, you know, like I always had male friends and I felt like a lot of female relationships I had were very like arm's length and stuff. And the book just created this weird sense of intimacy with like so many other, so many women, you know, who just felt like they connected so much to the subject matter. It was like, I didn't have to try so hard anymore for them to like me or something. <laughs> I don't know, that sounds pathetic. But it just opened up my relationship with women a lot more. So I feel like if I was writing the book again now, my criticisms of women would probably be less harsh than they are in the book, you know? And it's funny because there is a new, we're gonna be making a new, like an expanded edition of the book for its 10th anniversary, which will have way more movies in the appendix, like the appendix has all the kind of capsule reviews. And so there's gonna be an expanded appendix, but I'm not actually gonna change the bulk of the book. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it as it is. So it's not gonna be like revised and expanded. It's just gonna be expanded, you know, because I was just like, whatever was my point of view about anything at that time, even if my opinion of a movie has changed, or in some cases, I just know I have a lot more context for certain movies now than I did 10 years ago. Like I know more about the director and I would probably write more intelligently about them or whatever. I just don't want to do that. I mean, that book exists, it's from 2012. And that is the book that was written at that point in my life. And I don't want to change it, you know, like I'd rather just move forward, so. It's gonna come out again, and I do feel as though when it comes out again, there will be people that point out that it's very white, it's very heterosexual, cisgendered, like, I mean, it's it's coming from a really specific perspective, you know? And in a way that, you know, seems like, it, it will seem 
like it's not considered enough, you know, for 2022, you know, compared to 2012. I feel like there's been a lot better writing since that book on some of those movies, you know? So, I mean, I feel as though like in comparison, like anybody who reads the book for the first time with the new edition will potentially be like, uh, you know, like so-and-so wrote about possession more eloquently than this, you know? And so there's going to be a lot of that. I feel like I wonder whether it can hold up like 10 years later in a new edition for like a new audience of like 20 year olds or whatever who are just reading it for the first time. You know, like we'll find, we'll, we'll see, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I did it. There was a time a few years ago when I was not glad I did it. I regretted that I did it because like, uh, you know, one of the fears that you have putting out a book with that much personal material is that it becomes easy for someone to read it and manipulate you or do something creepy, you know? And so that kind of thing happened. And so there was like a couple of years where I just wished I'd never wrote it, you know? But now I'm kind of on the other side of that again. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad I wrote it because it's the best thing I ever did. I don't know if I'll do something as good as that again, that will like touch people in the same way or affect people in the same way, you know? So I just have to be grateful that I have something like that in my life. Again, I will state, I think it's one of the most important film books out there. Although it doesn't, I don't get the same workout lifting it like a Stephen Thrower book, but that's okay. We all can't have like giant <laughs> fucking like table. It's not even Well, a that was a deliberate book. choice. Harvey wanted it to be that big. I wanted people to be able to take it on the bus. That was my thing. So I like picked a size that was like as big as you can get and still feel comfortable carrying it in your bag on the bus. I was just making a slight joke. I love the old, <laughs> I love Stephen Thrower's books, but God damn it, they're fucking heavy. Like, yeah, well, you, do you have the new Ghastly One book? No, I, I, I didn't get the Andy Milligan book yet, but I understand it's... I can't even lift it. It's like on the top of my dresser and it's like every time I have to move it to dust around, like I can't even lift it. But as we're talking about books and, you know, how they're made and how they're put together, you know, not only are you a published author, you're also, you also stepped into the publishing arena yourself with Spectacular Optical. What inspired you to start your own publishing company? Okay. So first of all, I had the website. Okay, now I haven't thought about this in a while, but so I had the website Spectacular Optical and how that website came about was it was originally, I was working for the Fantasia Film Festival in like around 2010 and they wanted to make a website that uh, engaged their audience year round, you know, that had like articles all year round so that they weren't just like one, once a year coming and doing this festival. They wanted to somehow keep their fans mobilized all year. And so I started working for them and my job was to make this website. So I called it Spectacular Optical. So I picked the name. Nobody argued with me about it. Well, it's, it is a Canadian, you know, it's from Videodrome in case you didn't know. I'm sure people knew. Not you, obviously you knew, but people listening. So yeah, we started doing kind of almost like a monthly journal, you know, so it was like once a month, all the new content would go up and there would be... So I did it sort of, I guess, modeled after something like Senses of Cinema or something where it's like each month was a new edition or new volume or whatever. And 
you know, I did it for a couple of years, but ultimately the festival didn't like it. They didn't see, because they felt as though when they were looking at the numbers that all the people reading it were not from Quebec. They were not from Montreal. And those were the audiences they were trying to get because those were the local audiences that were coming to the festival and that they wanted it to be much more local. Um, but they also felt after two years, they felt like it just, they were like, uh, we don't really need this. But I had built the website, like I had worked with the web company and designed the whole thing and stuff. And so Pierre, who runs the Fantasia Film Festival, told me I could just have the website. He was like, well, you built it, you named it, you can have the URL free, you know, just have the website. And so it actually sat there for, I think, like a year, like where I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then I looked into some grant program I thought oh I can apply for a grant to make I was like maybe I can apply for a grant to make spectacular optical into like a like a print journal uh, like a magazine or something right so there could be this what this could be the website for this like magazine and so I looked into these Canadian grants and realized that the eligibility and the funding and all this kind of stuff was actually, it was harder to meet the eligibility requirements for a magazine than it was for a book. Like it seemed like it was easier to get money for a book than it was a magazine. You know, it was like a magazine, you had to have a circulation of this or that, you know, you had to, you had to meet all these requirements to count as a magazine that they would support. But for a book, it was like, you had to print a minimum of 50 copies or something, you know, it had to have a minimum of 50 pages. It was like all these, like nothing. And I was like, that's it. I mean, like magazines are even longer than that, you know? So I was just like, okay, great. Well, I'm going to start, I'm going to rebrand Spectacular Optical as a book publishing company. I'm going to apply for this grant and do a book. So anyway, we, we applied every year for grants, never got a single grant, but I had now already started collecting writers to do the first book, which was Kid Power. So Kid Power, you know, the cover of the Kid Power book actually says Spectacular Optical Book One Kid Power because I thought that would be the kind of format that all the books would take, you know, that they would be this like almost like a journal, except, you know, thick and perfect bound and stuff. So to me, I looked at the Kid Power book almost like it was a magazine, you know, like it was a magazine and I just got random people to write about kids movies that meant something to them so the kid power book the curatorial perspective of that book is not especially there wasn't a strong like direction for it the way the where the way there was for my subsequent books where we were trying to get the whole thing to tell a certain story and a full story you know like the kid power book definitely does not tell like the full story of kids movies it's just kind of like a smattering of stuff whereas i feel like the subsequent spectacular optical books which were the next year after that 2015 was satanic panic and that was like another book that that did pretty well so that was kind of like trying to find writers to cover all the bases uh, from different aspects of pop culture and how they related to the satanic panic of the 1980s and the hope would be that if somebody read the whole book that by the end of it, they would have a decent picture of that decade. Satanic Panic became more of the model for the subsequent Spectacular Optical books where they really did try to be comprehensive, you know? And so, yeah, so there was like Satanic Panic and then 
two books the same year, which were Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror on film and television, and the Jean Roland book, Lost Girls. So yeah, we only did four books. We have another one that we've been working on forever, uh, which is our book about Robert Downey Sr., um, so we've been working on a book, an anthology book. We we have like three chapters that haven't been handed in. And so it's just kind of like been dragging on forever because of that. But otherwise, <laughs> that'll be the next one. The reason like I, I like the spect- spectacular optical books is because like it's, it is comprehensive and you get a lot of voices. And how did you approach different writers to contribute to these books? Well, it's kind of a mix, you know, like because we... Most of the writers I would go to because I knew they, I mean, some writers I would just be like, I just want this writer involved. So what do you want to write about? You know, and then other writers, it would be, they specialize in a certain thing, you know, uh, like Derek Johnson, who wrote for the Yuletide Terror book had written so much about holiday horror, like from an academic perspective, he'd done tons of papers, presentations, had written a book called, I think, Haunted Seasons, maybe. So I knew that I wanted him involved because he, you know, he was an expert in this kind of thing. And so there were certain people like that. And then there were also, you know, there's always for Spectacular Optical, a certain amount of emerging writers, you know, so some of the writers for those books have never been published or never been paid to be published before. And so we would always try to give newer writers a chance as well. You know, sometimes that works and sometimes doesn't because it does, you know, sometimes it takes a lot more editing, but also sometimes newer writers are more, they'll get more into it and they'll do more work and they'll, they'll do more research and everything than someone who's more established, you know? So it's kind of like you get different things from having different, like people at different career levels and then people from different perspectives, you know? And it also, just from a practical perspective, it usually helps the book come together faster. You know, like if I write a book myself, everybody knows how long that takes. (laughs) It's like 10 years for me to write a book. So this is a way for me to still put out books and be promoting stuff and traveling with a book and everything else without it being 10 years. You know, it can sometimes all come together in a year from like conception to publication. So yeah, so I started doing that. And then the Downey book, maybe the last spectacular optical anthology, at least for a while, because I realized that by, you know, by focusing on the anthologies, it took me away from writing my own books, you know? So it's like, it just added like how much more time there is before my next book as a writer will come out, you know, because I was like, oh, I should have been paying more attention to my own career because I've been kind of spent four or five years kind of promoting other people's careers and then doing the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is a similar thing where you're like kind of creating a platform or opportunities for other people to speak and other people to be recognized as experts in their field. But in the meantime, my, I felt like my own career was kind of sliding to the back burner and I was becoming like a promoter for other people more than I was being considered a writer. And I mean, it was very obvious because it was like, all of a sudden I kind of stopped getting jobs, you know, it was like commentary jobs and, and writing gigs and everything like that. Like they all kind of dried up because it was like, people forget about you really fast in this industry if you're not out there constantly. And so it felt as though like, because I was putting so much into like being like on the sidelines or, you know, behind the scenes, like promoting other writers, um, that it kind of hurt my own career a little bit. And so I felt like I needed to reshift and refocus a bit. And so now I'm really trying to like at least spend a few solid years 
just working on my own books and my own films or whatever. Speaking of your own writing, is there any projects you can talk about now, or are they all hush-hush, top secret right now? Yeah, well, I have... Um, so my Cockfighter book, which is three years late, I had a fundraiser for it three years ago because I thought at the time I had like... I was two-thirds of the way done. I had one-third left. I thought if I had a fundraiser and I spent the last two months working on it, that's all it would take and I could hammer it out. That ended up not being the case because, as usual with all my projects, instead of getting closer to the end, they just grow. <laughs> you know. And so the Cockfighter book is already beyond the word count of what I imagined that book to be. You know? Like if I wanted, I, I have enough words now that I could, you know, publish this book, but it's just like, but I still feel like I have like all this more work to do because I just, the scope of it got bigger to me, you know, so it's kind of grown. And so I'm really, really trying to finish that book this year. I just feel like it has to come out this year or I'm going to kill myself. But, um, so yeah, the cockfighter monograph and then the, um, House of Psychotic Women next edition. I need to work on that. And there's and then there's just other stuff I've edited. So it's like the Robert Downey Sr. book will come together as soon as we get those last chapters in. But I also edited a book for the Alibo Draft House. And it's okay to talk about it because it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. But I edited a book about the history of Weird Wednesday and the birth of the American genre film archive. So... This is a book that is an incredibly colorful, fully illustrated book all about the Alamo Draft House's Weird Wednesday series, which started with this initial kind of haul of wrecked, trashed 35 millimeter exploitation film prints. And then that collection kind of became the cornerstone for what is now AGFA. And so it kind of has an oral history of Weird Wednesday. It also has like all the original capsule reviews that were used to sell the movies at Weird Wednesday, some of which are supplement. There are some newer, the some ones we had to get written new because every time there would be a film that there was something wrong with it. So we'd have like certain movies in the program, but inevitably a bunch of the movies couldn't be played by the time we actually got them inspected or whatever. So they'd have to be like replaced by something at the last minute. And so then there were no surviving promotional capsules for those movies because they weren't planned to be shown. And so in order to include everything that played at Weird Wednesday, we had to get people to write capsules for those movies. So there are like a small percentage of them that are like written now. But, uh, but for the most part, it's just all the original write-ups. And then there's also kind of a Weird Wednesday Hall of Fame of like all the kind of actors and directors and stuff that would, would appear on screen most regularly at Weird Wednesday. And then kind of like an epilogue dealing with like how AGFA got formally started. And it doesn't tell the full story of AGFA because I like AGFA will be its own story someday, you know? So it just kind of ends with the beginning of AGFA, you know? But it's but to me it's a real labor of love because it's kind of really focused on those years that I was there and worked there and and so there's a lot of the people I consider to be like the core old school Alamo people that are all interviewed in it and stuff like that and so it's a very fun and funny book especially like as a programmer or print collector it's got lots of funny stories in it. 
amazing. Looking forward to that one. But we're going to take another commercial break here. But we return, we're going to talk about Kayla Janice's academic writing meets her film program side with a little thing called the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies on the Cinematic Void Podcast. <laughs> Are you jealous? I'm not the same as my sister. Son of a bitch. He wasn't satisfied with just killing her. He gouged out her eyes. The blue eyes of the broken doll. Welcome back. We've been talking to Kayla Janice about her illustrious career in so many different facets of genre of films and filmmaking and programming and all that stuff. This next part we're going to talk about is, I think it's, I would say it's kind of the meeting of two of the things you've done, which is film programming and academic film writing. And it's something you found in 2010, which is the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. Could you tell us about how this came about? Yeah, so Miskatonic was originally supposed to be like a one-off workshop that I did for teenagers when I was living in Winnipeg. Would have been, so it was 2010. And I was doing a residency. I was the writer-in-residence at this bookstore that had like a second floor where they would do like events and stuff. It was a really cool, funky little store. And they just had this area where they had little offices. And so they had like four little offices that they would give out as like residency spaces. And so I, I was working on House of Psychotic Women like while I was uh, the artist in residency there. And um, but part of your residency was that you had to do something that like you had to do some kind of an event that engaged the public. So either you had to do like a reading of like whatever you were working on during your residency or you had to do something. And so it was actually like the guy who owned the place that said like, oh, spring break will be happening and there's never anything for the teenage, like younger teenagers to do. There's all this stuff for like young kids and then older teenagers are just off doing whatever they want, but there's nothing for like the kind of 13, 14 year olds to do. And they were like, why don't you do some kind of horror workshop for the kids? And uh, so I was like, okay. So I decided that I was gonna do a five day workshop that whole spring break that was all about like horror film criticism, like introduction to horror film criticism for teens. It was not very well thought out at all. I decided to call it the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies for Homicidally Distressed Teenagers. They told me to, which was a which was a riff on something else, it's like a riff on like a maybe it's like an Alan Moore comic or something like it's a reference to something that I don't even remember. The, um, owner said, we can't call it that. We'll never, nobody will send their teenagers. If you talk about them being homicidally distressed. So you just call it just Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is good enough. And I was like, okay. So I did this workshop and it was just hilarious because like, I didn't know anything about teaching or how to teach or how to instruct or how to, like, I didn't know how to do that. And then on top of it, they're like 13 years old and stuff. And so they weren't interested in like reading long essays, but you know, by all these academic writers and stuff. And so, you know, but it was like every day, we would also watch a movie because the classes were like the whole day too, you know? So it was like, we would have all this discussion, we'd have these readings and then they would watch a movie. And so they, the part they liked best obviously was watching the movie. And so I had them just reading like all these examples of different styles of horror film criticism, like from Deep Red, you know, I had them reading like Chaz Ballin and like 
eyeball and fangoria like everything you know like all these different zines and stuff like that and just like talking about the basics of like you know what film criticism means and what is its purpose and stuff and uh and you know trying to find your voice or whatever and at the end of the workshop i didn't know if it was successful or not but then some other group like that did um it was like a youth center for like at-risk youth. And they asked me if I would come and do the workshop there for their kids. And I was like, okay. So I went there and those kids were um, much more uh, varied in age. Some of them were like eight, you know, and some of them were 16. And all of them had a bad attitude. They were all like (laughs) delinquents, you know. And uh, they had no interest. So I had all these, like, all this photocopying I had done. I had, you know, just printed out so many of these, like, articles and essays and stuff. And they were just like, nope, not going to read shit, you know? So the first day, it was like a two-day workshop with them. The first day I played The Haunting of Julia, which they hated. You know, they were just like, oh, my God, this is so boring. Nothing is happening, you know? And so then the next day I was just like, oh my God, this is a disaster. Like, what am I going to do? Like, they just, they hate it. They don't want to, you know, like they don't want to engage with anything. I don't know how to teach anybody anything. And, uh, so then the second day I just showed them stuck by Stuart Gordon (laughs) and they loved that movie. They loved it. So they were just like begging the teacher to get me to come back and do another workshop. And so I was like, no, I don't want to do it. But um, <laughs> so it was like, really, they just wanted to watch movies with like sex and <laughs> violence in them. But that was kind of how it started. And then I decided to, I was like, well, you know, like, I know Calum Vattenstall and he had done this book about horror, Canadian horror. Maybe I can get him to do his like do a lecture on Canadian horror back at the bookstore that had, you know, let me do the first workshop. And so then Calum did a class and it was funny because he thought he was going to be doing it for teenagers because that was who had come for my first workshop. But it was all like 30 and 40 year olds and stuff that came to his class. And he was kind of taken aback because he had not really prepared something beyond a certain level, you know? So he was like, oh, okay. You know, so he was like a bit surprised by that but it was kind of like the 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 two things happening like one being like the second youth group hearing about the workshop and wanting me to repeat it and then the idea of like Caleb doing a class and me realizing that like oh because I've done all this programming and horror writing and whatever like I know a lot of other horror experts you know and like maybe I know enough people to do something like this regularly you know I was moving to Montreal in June of 2010 to open a little micro cinema um, with my friend Dave Bertrand we had a little micro cinema for two years called Blue Sunshine in Montreal and uh, so since I was gonna have a venue like my own venue I was like, well, we can do Miskatonic classes like every week, you know, here. We can just have it built in, part of the programming. So it started at the Fantasia Film Festival in 2010. Stuart Gordon and um, Dennis Paoli were at the festival with their, with the play, Nevermore, I think, you know. And um, so then I asked the festival about us going together on doing a Miskatonic class and like kind of really inaugurating Miskatonic 
with a class on adapting Lovecraft for the screen by these guys. And so we did that at Blue Sunshine. It was one of the first events we even did there when we opened. It was packed, obviously, and uh, did really well. And and that was really where it started in terms of like taking a formal shape, you know, but it was still for the first year fairly experimental, you know, like the quality of the classes was really all over the place in terms of some instructors would be really academic, you know, and then other instructors would be really colloquial and vernacular and, and really loose. And, you know, so the first year was kind of like finding our footing and finding our balance. And there was a guy named Christopher Woofter who was a, at the time, I think he was a PhD student. I think he has his PhD now, but he was coming to the Stuart Gordon event and he was late by a week. He like missed it or maybe he was a week early or something, but he came the wrong week. And I found out that he was like a horror, that he was an academic and he taught at university, but was also like a horror expert. And I was like, great, you can be one of the instructors or whatever. Like I kind of roped him in to like help me. And then he brought um, his friend, Mario DiGilio Belmar. Uh, and so then they helped a, a lot, you know, because they actually came from a much more formal academic background than I did. Um, and so they really helped um, kind of build the level of standards that Miskatonic has, you know, like just in terms of trying to have this like consistency in the classes and stuff. You know, we would argue a lot about the experience that the lecturers had to have. I, I required people to have like formal documented expertise that they were horror experts. So that meant that they wrote books about horror or they had whatever, uh, tons of essays about horror or they were a journalist for a magazine, you know, like they were known as a horror person. Whereas some of the people that they would get came from completely outside of the horror world and they would kind of like assign them something that would be that they thought that person could do or could have an interest in. And we would, I didn't like that as much because I was just like, I wanted the person, you know, like I didn't want it to be something they did a crash course in and then taught. You know, like I wanted them to be coming with this like years and years of expertise already, you know, because otherwise there's no difference between like our audience could also just do a crash course, you know, like they can spend a month reading about the stuff too, you know? So it was like, to me, the difference was like having the instructors that actually had that background, you know, all that said without Mario and Chris, I don't know that it would have survived at all because they really, really gave it the backbone that it, that it needed, you know, that really needed this strong foundation. And I feel like they, they gave it that, you know, because I've always been like very much like I have these ideas. I'm often like the idea person. I'm all, I'm not always the best person to execute my ideas. You know, like there's other people who can execute my ideas less sloppily than me. <laughs> like things tend to be a little sloppy sometimes when I'm doing them because I'm just kind of like, ah, I don't know, they, I have this great idea and I want to do this thing, but I'm a bit shambolic and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, and sometimes there are other people that are like just more organized or more patient or more like whatever that can actually take that idea and make it into something that works, you know? And I feel like all the people who've been involved with Miskatonic over the years have been those people, you know, like I've, I've, I've teamed up with a lot of people because they have these skills that are bad, that balance, whatever the skills are that I have, you know, and 
So Miskatonic grew and it, you know, we opened a branch in London, opened a branch in New York, opened a branch in LA. The Montreal one closed because I moved away and Mario and Chris started their own organization called Monstrum where they are doing classes. They're doing similar types of classes, but they're kind of doing it their own way. So, you know, they don't have to argue with me anymore about how they want to do things. Um, and they also have a journal. So they're totally set up doing their own thing. And so we didn't have a Montreal branch anymore, but London, New York, and LA, uh, they all have different co-directors. And obviously like when I first started the London one was the, was the first time I started one in a place where I didn't live, you know? So that it was like, I couldn't actually, I knew it was a good idea. And I knew there were tons of scholars in the UK who specialized in horror much more than anywhere else probably, but I needed somebody on the ground, you know, to actually run it. And so I got my friend Virginie, uh, Virginie Salavi to run it for the first like two years, I think. And then Josh Sacco took over after that. Um, and he had come from an exhibition background. And so he was really great on the promotion side and stuff. Um, and then, so the idea would be that I would like co-direct with that person, whoever was local, but in Josh's case in London, I mean, he just, he just took it, you know, like he didn't need me actually to do anything. Cause he, he was great. And so then, uh, New York, I started originally with, uh, Mark Walco, who's kind of like an Asian film expert. He used to work for Criterion and stuff. Uh, and then Joe Yannick from Yellow Veil Pictures became my partner. And they've just announced a new uh, co-director, Christina Cachopo, who who was a programmer at the Alamo Draft House in uh, Brooklyn, is gonna be one of the co-directors there. And then Amy Voorhees Searles and Graham Skipper are the co-directors for LA. And it was, yeah, it's kind of like when I lived in LA, I was the co-director there, or I was pretty much the only director, and then I moved away from LA. So I got Graham and Amy to take over and everybody's just, it's like these amazing teams of people who are all horror experts in like different areas and they all have different strengths. Like some people are very much like behind the scenes type of people. And then other people are very much just good at being like on stage doing the intros. And you know, so it's like a really great team of people doing it. And it got to be such a strong group of people that I felt I was actually able to step away. And like I said earlier, try to focus a bit more on my writing, try to get some books done. And so as of January this year, I transitioned to the board because we have an advisory board at Miskatonic of just various horror people, you know, like programmers and actors and directors and all kinds of people and scholars and stuff like that. And uh, so I transitioned to the board to be there in like a support role, but Sheila Rowan Leg uh, took over as the executive director. So she, as of January, she's actually running it. And they just launched a new website like last week. So they redesigned the website and stuff. And I feel like she's done a really great job already of like getting, you know, online classes, like dealing with the pandemic, we had to shift to having online classes and stuff. And that was a challenge because it was something people have been asking for forever from Miskatonic. And I had always been really opposed to it, but then the pandemic made it so that we didn't really have much of a choice. We had to do it if we wanted to survive, you know? And, uh, and then it turned out really great. Like we have more people going to the online classes than we ever had to the in-person ones, you know? 
besides Miskatonic, you've also worked on some other film projects that obviously we talked about your latest one, but there's a couple other films I wanted to talk about. The first being Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that rule the 70s. You really like long titles for all your <laughs> well, films. Well, that that's not my title. Mike. That's Mike Malloy's baby, really. I was, I was really in a, just a support role for that movie. He, I think, had already written a book about Lee Marvin, and he was very, you know, this would have been, I mean, around the time I was doing my Rossi book, I can't remember if he contacted me before or after, you know, like if he helped me with something with the Rossi book, or if I met him after because of the Rossi book, but it was around that time anyway. And I was programming at the Draft House, and he wanted to make this Eurocrime documentary. And obviously, because of my Luciano Rossi book, there's a lot of Eurocrime movies in there. And so it was like the combination of the fact that I was familiar with the genre to some degree. um, And then also because I worked in film programming at the Draft House, where we were known for having special guests, like... He knew that I was a person who, as part of my job, would have to reach out and cold call, you know, strangers, like actors and stuff like that to try to get them to do stuff. And so he wanted to see if I could utilize my contacts uh, with Henry Silva and John Saxon, Joe D'Alessandro. So the three of them we'd done stuff with, I think, at the draft house. So I already had contacts with them. Leonard Mann somehow, like I brought on Leonard Mann and I can't remember what, how that happened. Somehow I got his email. Um, and then Chris Mitchum, I brought on as well. So I think I, I think I, I brought on kind of the first six people that were interviewed for the movie. And then I also connected him with, uh, Federico Cadeo, who is an Italian, uh, director and cinematographer who has done like god thousands of blu-ray extras in italy it, it's like the guy he's the guy that interviews everybody on everything italian you know and every other label kind of uses him if they need interviews with italian people you know and he just does this like he has the whole setup and then he does the subtitles and i mean he just he's amazing to work with And Federico contacted me out of the blue because he liked my Luciano Rossi book and was trying to figure out where I had gotten some uh, images or something in it. And he said to me, oh, if you ever need any uh, interviews shot with Italians, I'll do it for free. And I was just like, what? And so I was just like... uh, so I was like, well, what about these people? And I just listed like all these Eurocrime directors and actors. And he was like, oh, yes, yes. I'm seeing that person tomorrow. And I'm seeing that person in two weeks. And I was just like, are you serious? And I was like, because I actually do need interviews with all these people, you know. And so like I connected him with Mike Malloy. And then Federico shot like all the Italian people that are in that movie. Um, but that was all I did. So I was not on set ever. I was not like actually involved in even really setting up the interviews you know I think there were a couple of the interviews where I was actually liaising for them to go to the place where they had to get filmed or whatever but for the most part it was really just the first call and then I would pass them over to Mike Malloy and he would take over the funniest one was Chris Mitchum though because as I remember it I was on MySpace this this was before Facebook so I'm on MySpace I get a message from Chris Mitchum because like on my MySpace I think I had a picture of Chris Mitchum as my profile and everything was like I love Chris Mitchum Chris Mitchum 
and like hearts with Christmas, just whatever, you know. So anyway, I get an email from this guy or a MySpace message that's like, hey, I'm Chris Mitchum. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure you are. And he's like, no, really, I'm Chris Mitchum. And uh, I'm like, you're not Chris Mitchum. And he's like, well, that's what it says on my birth certificate. And I was just like, oh, really? Well, if you're Chris Mitchum, then show up at this place like on Saturday for an interview or whatever. <laughs> and it turned out it really was Chris Mitchum. <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, that's really Mike Malloy's movie. It's his baby. Worked on it for years. Edited it himself. Financed it himself. Like... Uh, him and his brother, I think. And I mean, he worked so hard on that movie, you know, so it was really just, you know, he needed me to open a couple doors for him at the beginning to create some, you know, so he had some leverage for to get more interviews or so that it just cr created some momentum for the project. But that was about all I, I did really on that. I was going to say, the other film you produced was a little more recent that you were a little more involved in, which was Tales of Tales of the Uncanny, which you did with David Gregory. Can you tell us about that project? Because this is, a, you know, it's essentially it's a pandemic project. Yeah, it's totally a pandemic project. So David Gregory wanted to make an, a, I'm trying to remember if it, if it also started as a featurette. I feel like it was a featurette for something originally, but... He wanted to make kind of like a longer featurette about the history of anthology films. And, you know, we had started off interviewing some people. We had, you know, on-camera interviews with like, uh, I think Mick Garris, Yvonne Vukovic, Amanda Reyes, Bruce Hallenbeck. Oh, David DelVal. And then, you know, as often happens with Severin releases you know like certain things get shift around in the schedule and put on the back burner based on like what materials are found or materials that are ready you know like certain releases will move further up in the queue because for whatever reason all the extras came together really fast and that disc is actually ready earlier than expected so then it comes first and it pushes something else back and other times things that are planned first get released later because, oh, we just found actually the negative for that movie. So now we have better elements to work with. So, but it means we're not going to get the movie out for three more months or something, you know. So things are constantly kind of shifting like that. And so some you can be in the middle of something and then all of a sudden it just drops off the schedule completely. And so the anthology thing was kind of like that where it was like, we were working on it, we were filming people, and then it just kind of stopped. And then right around the time that COVID started, uh, David wanted to pick it up again um, because he's like, okay, now I, you know, for whatever reason, he he uh, put it back on the schedule. Um, but then we were dealing with COVID and we couldn't shoot people in interviews. And, you know, he had talked about filming some people on Zoom and I was just like, oh, well, that's going to look like crap compared to the people who were shot professionally. And he's like, yeah, but not if we get like 50 people like that, you know, and we kind of make it where we're asking people what, you know, we kind of make it like bam, 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 you know, of like just talking to everybody about what's your favorite anthology film, what's your favorite scene in it, you know, what's your favorite segment. And we just create this sense of it being like a real fan documentary where it's kind of like all these programmers and directors and, and, you know, known horror people, but 
they're all talking like as fans and because of the pandemic, you're actually seeing them like in their house, you know, with all their toys behind them and their horror posters and, and everything. And it really, and so he just had this real vision for it. And I was actually having a hard time picturing it at first because all I could picture was like pixelated video, you know? And, um, but then when he, you know, so he, we split up, we made an interview list and we split it in half where it's like, okay, David has to contact all these people and interview them. I need to contact all these people and interview them. We split them. And then we came back and we made kind of like a spreadsheet of like what everybody had picked in terms of their favorite movies. And then he sent all the footage, um, to Mike Capone, who was the editor of the film. And Mike did such an amazing job. And he, he, he found so much of the archival imagery and stuff that's in the film that he ended up getting a producer credit on it as well. Mike Capone, when he did that first edit of it and sent it back, I was just like, oh man, this actually works like a real movie. Like it, it, you know, the pacing is good and it's like very energetic and the crappy zoom video is not bothering me, you know, for whatever reason it's working. Yeah. So it was just, it was interesting. Like David, I feel like the editing process went so fast, especially compared to my folk horror documentary, (laughs) which was like years. I was like, this is the difference between David Gregory being the director and me being the director. It's like, he gets it done in like two months and I take like two, three years. But yeah, so it was a very fun and rewarding project because we went into it with kind of like really low expectations to just do something fun. And then it was just really fun actually catching up with everybody during COVID as everybody was kind of figuring out what the pandemic was and what it meant and how their lives were changing. Cause it was really just in that first month of, of the pandemic, you know, that we were talking to everybody. And so it's kind of great now to have that like document you know, of like, this is what everybody was kind of thinking at that time. I mean, granted, they're not really talking about COVID in the movie. Those are all all the the stuff that got edited out. But it was just really fun for us to like, just connect on a personal level with all those people. And then to share the movie with them, you know, when the movie was done, it it just turned out so much better than anybody expected. And it ended up playing some festivals, which we never expected it to and uh and winning some audience awards and stuff like that and so we were really happy with it it was just like it was a very life-affirming project in a lot of ways we're going to take one final break here on the cinematic boy podcast but when we return it'll be read watch and listen Guillermo del Toro made this observation, ever since humans gathered around a campfire and could talk, we've been telling stories about the dark and what lives inside it. Are you ready to be scared? I love anthology horror films, and there were a lot of them. Short form horror, it's just this enduring medium. So many anthology films have a framing story where it is someone reading stories. A celebration of a lot of different talents and a lot of different voices. Which allowed the stories to be comedic sometimes or dark as hell. Very weird. Nightmare fuel. 20 minutes of sheer terror. It's so difficult to say favorites. But I really like the Corman poster. I mean, do I like Tales from the Crypt or what? You were pushing with that makeup. That was a seminal image. One of the first film posters I ever designed was Music Club. It was just monsters. It was gore. It was fun. This isn't the bloody army. This isn't the bloody army. This is not the bloody army. If my 
be good to actually do a poll. There's always a lot of debate about what's their favorite episode, what's their favorite film. We interviewed over 60 different people. I mean, I've seen lots of Lebanicus, Black Sabbath, Creep Show 2. Yeah, that's a great one. I just was like, ah. You're always kind of cherry picking which segment you like best. I just couldn't narrow it down to one. The high point to me has always been a dead of night. That little segment is one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. It's one of my absolute favorites. It was really fantastic. And even though I worked on Creepshow, it's my favorite. I share that sensibility with a lot of horror fans. Perfect. There's something about that human desire to want to tell scary stories to each other. Welcome back. It is now time for... Here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. Now, obviously, we're recording this a little out of order, so Nick and Nye's list is going to be not going to really work out when you hear this episode, but hey, it's what it is. But Kayla, can you tell us what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? Yeah, well, I tend to have like a bunch of books going at once because I have like my leisure books and then I have my work books and then they often overlap, but like... I would say the I just started reading a book like two nights ago called Sky Gods, The Fall of Pan Am, <laughs> which we were talking about my my interest in airline history before. And so there you go. And then the one I just finished before that was um, The Man with the Candy, which is like a true crime book about Dean Coral. He was like a Houston uh, killer of like uh, teen, young teenage boys. You, you know, I think they they found like 30 bodies or whatever, and then they just gave up looking for more. And then my kind of the workbook that I just finished reading was this amazing, amazing book. Actually, I haven't totally finished. I've just finished reading the parts that I needed to read for the thing I was doing, but um, called Hard Hats, Rednecks, and Macho Men. And it's all about class in the 1970s, in 1970s movies. And for some reason, I, I've had this book forever and had not, like, I kept expecting it to not be good for some reason. I have no idea why. Uh, like, I had low expectations about it or something. And then I started reading it and I was like, the intro is very, like, theory, very heavy theory and quite alienating. But it's like, as soon as he starts talking about the movies, it's amazing. It has, like, the whole, this whole section on kind of, like, construction site construction worker type movies and then he has another like whole section on southern films so it's like trucker films and cb films and moonshiner films and stuff like that um and then the last chapter is all about like male nightlife movies you know so things like cruising and saturday night fever and stuff and so i haven't read that section yet but i was reading it for the, the southern parts because and it's actually been incredibly helpful for my cockfighter book just in terms of giving context to certain things that were happening in Georgia and stuff like at the time when Cockfighter would have been made and the you know the years leading up to that and stuff uh I loved it so much I actually tweeted at the guy to tell him how much I loved his book uh guy his name's Derek Nystrom this guy who wrote this book but so so that's definitely like the standout of a lot of the stuff I've been reading lately and then for what I've been watching I've been watching a lot of Roberta Finley movies for something I'm working on that I don't think has been announced so I can't say um but 
So watching a lot of like her porn stuff, which I had not watched before. Like I'd watched some of the 60s roughies and stuff that she did with Michael Finley, but I had not watched her like solo films as a porn director. And that's been really interesting because like some of them are just like, oh, sloppy and whatever, but some of them are great. Like just really funny and like really creative uh beautiful production design and stuff like um anyone but my husband is great it's really funny and then uh you know just like like one hilarious set piece after another and then um glitter has amazing uh production production value you know like beautiful like brown velvet sofas and spider plants and whatever i mean it's just beautifully lit I mean, like, I tend to, like, not care about all the, like, 20-minute-long sex scenes and stuff. I wish sex scenes in porno movies were, like, I don't know, three minutes. I feel like 20 minutes is too long. (laughs) I mean, I guess it serves a purpose. There's a reason why they're 20 minutes long. But for me, it's, like, I just wish it was, like, the, the foreplay and then the money shot, you know? Like, I don't need all the middle. But... But other than that, I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of the other stuff that's going on in the films is is often interesting because it's often like reacting to things that are happening culturally, like in real life, you know, and like um, really, you know, have, having a dialogue with other movies and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so some of those movies have been great. And then um, I just watched The Klansman last night, which I had never seen with Lee Marvin and Richard Burton. And O.J. Simpson. Can we talk about the Cameron Mitchell fight with Richard Burton? That fight was insane. Like, the stunts are insane. It just seemed like everything in that movie was set up to just break or explode instantly. Like, it just looked so fake. He's, like, throwing him through doorways and windows and whatever, and cars explode if you just touch them. But, yeah, go. what What do you want to say about that fight? It. I, I, I think Richard Burton was so fucking drunk while doing it, he couldn't move his arms. Like, he does, like, the worst karate chop. Even white man karate chop is, it's horrendous. Yeah, he was, I did not, I was not impressed with Richard Burton in that movie. I was impressed with Lee Marvin, though. I thought Lee, because apparently Lee Marvin was also drunk, but he still came across as great in the movie. I think Lee Marvin, like Oliver Reed, even if they are inebriated or drunk, or or whatever stage of how much they've consumed before doing a movie, they can somehow they have the charisma to like get past it. Where Richard Burton was just like, you need you need to take a cold shower and sober up before you fight Cameron Mitchell again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. It, it, but it was it was. Uh, I mean, it was depressing in a way because it's just like. You know, obviously, like, just the way rape is dealt with in the film, and obviously it's deliberate, you know? It's like they're trying to show this is how people are responding to rape. Like, it's like nothing, you know? It's like they're raping a woman, and then they get in trouble for, you know, trespassing. And it's like the woman, what's happening to the woman means nothing, like, legally to anyone. You know, and it's like, obviously, they're they're trying to... The movie itself is is trying to make a statement about that, you know? So I don't feel that that's, like, the ideology of the movie itself. You know, it's it's the characters. But still, you know, it was just hard to watch. Stuff like that. Um, but, you know, Lee Marvin, his performance was great. There is some great cinematography. 
I thought all the stunts and stuff were like ridiculous though. But yeah, so that was what I watched last night. And again, that's like all because of my cockfighter book, I work, I, I write on Saturdays and Sundays. And so I try to just stay in the Southern world usually. Like, so it's like at night, Saturdays and Sundays, I try to watch movies that like our Southern films take place down South just so I can stay in the kind of cockfighter world. And then I watched this other movie I guess it was last week called No Lies, which is like a short film. It was like 16 minutes long or whatever. And I'd never seen it by a guy named, I was going to say Marshall Brickman. It's not Marshall Brickman. It's, <laughs> no, I can't remember his name. Um, but it's like a story, but it's just like a cinema verite type film about a woman who's getting ready. And the person behind the camera is just kind of like, he's got a camera and he's playing around with it and he's a filmmaker and he's just want, trying to get her to talk about her day and what she's doing or whatever. And, and, uh, at some point she reveals that she was raped like the previous week. And, um, but she's like kind of trying to laugh it off and, and make like, like, oh, well, this crazy thing happened. And like, yeah, I don't know. Like that's, that was what happened to me last Tuesday or whatever. And the guy who's like behind the camera just keeps pushing her for not only like more detail about it, but also pushing her like why she didn't react a different way. Like why she didn't report it to the police and why she didn't do this or that and and then he starts like getting like really aggressive with her about like what she should have done and how she should be reacting and how she should be feeling and how she you know and all this stuff until eventually like the woman is crying and stuff and and it's you know the movie is meant to be this thing because like it's it's actors in the film but at the time when the movie was new in the mid-70s I think like it, people didn't know that like it was it was kind of like played as though it was uh, a documentary and so people would like freak out be at the way that this guy was harassing the woman who'd been raped and stuff you know and but the whole point of it is really just showing how how often that part of things like telling someone about it whether it's telling a friend or telling the cops or whatever uh that often that is, is, you know, just re-traumatizing and stuff like that. Um, but it, yeah, but it was just like a great little movie, you know, like a great little kind of performance piece. Um, I don't even know if, how I saw it. Like maybe it's on YouTube or something, but, uh, yeah, but that's what I've been watching. And then listening to, I bought myself this record called Bright Phoebus. It's a folk record of this, like a brother and sister duo from the UK in the seventies. And it was a very expensive record. It cost me like almost 200 bucks. And it was my reward for if my folk horror movie didn't get panned at South by Southwest. I was like, if people don't hate my movie, I'm going to buy myself this record, this fucking expensive record. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I bought that record and I've just been listening to that record nonstop. A well-deserved treat for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I'm i still making my way through the uh, Black Dahlia Avenger trilogy of books that you and your wife gave me. Um, so there's that. Uh, I just read House of Psychotic Women, which we spoke about earlier in the podcast. Um, and I've, uh, I haven't actually had a lot of time to read, watch, or listen lately. <laughs> but uh, House of Psychotic yeah. Women uh, led me to rewatch Antichrist by Lars von Trier, um, and there, and I've certainly made like a, a long list of films that I need to see uh, from reading this book. 
Um, so uh, I also just watched for the first time Necromantic 2 um, by Jorg Bootgerite. Jorg Bootgerite. Let's go with that. Um, and yeah, I'd only seen the first one uh, like 20 years ago on a shitty VHS tape that Jim made me. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I really prefer this, the second one. Um, the main actress, I think, is one of the composers, uh, Monica M. I think she composed a bunch of, of uh, Jorg's films and then starred in this one. I, th- I thought that was pretty cool. Um, let's see, what else? And then, as I had promised Jim, um, I'm continually watching Unearthed Films. <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. And uh, so I just watched Red Crocodile, um, which is uh, by a Roman director, um, uh, D- Damiziano Cristofaro. I, yeah, sorry about butchering your name, sir. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's just a film about this guy doing Crocodile, um, one of the few drugs I haven't tried. Uh, and just, you know, it just ravaging his body and just rotting his body away through the whole film. Um, it's, it's cool. It's fine. It's whatever. Um, and then I also from Unearthed Films just watched something called Atroz or Atrocious, uh, which is a Mexican film. And so I've, I've been watching a ton of Unearthed Films and this, this one stopped me. This fucking movie is awful. It's awful. Like, a lot of these movies are awful, but it's awful in a different way. This film, I would say, is, like, it's a mix between, like, it's, like, VHS meets, like, August uh, August Underground. Ter- just terrible. It's It's a terrible fake snuff film with, like found footage snuff film with like a wraparound like VHS style where they keep finding these tapes that these guys made of like these, like, you know, they, they're just killing people. It's, it's fucking awful. It's fucking awful. And don't watch it. (laughs) It's really, it's that crazy. It's just like, you know, if like things like hostile and whatever saw, if, if you like that kind of shit, I guess, but like, that's not, that's not even a horror movie to me. That's just garbage. It's it. I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm sure like lots of folks spent lots of time making these films and I apologize to them, but it's please, please stop. Please don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's all I've had the time to uh, watch lately. But uh, listening wise, um, I've been listening to the French uh, hardcore metallic hardcore band Kickback a ton, especially their record No Surrender, very much like Integrity or something like that but like way more nihilistic and fucked up and uh, just kind of what I'm looking for lately. Um, and then everything else I've been listening to is more on the electronic spectrum. Uh, Cherry Point, Night of the Bloody Tapes, uh, which is Phil, who you may know from the New Beverly. <laughs> and he makes crazy noise music and has put out like a hundred and some releases at this point. And uh, he's fucking awesome. Uh, also Pie Corner Audio, Hollow Earth, which is a little more synth wave a little more like John Carpenter-esque or something, a little more palatable. (laughs) Uh, And then also Atrax Morgue in Search of Death, um, which is just nihilistic, fucked up noise, power electronics, just just the embrace of death. 
sonically. <laughs> um, so that's what I've been up to. <laughs> I, I've, I'm actually shocked that you talked about an unearthed film where you didn't highly recommend it afterwards. <laughs> Do yourself a favor and get Evil Dead Trap when it comes out. Please, please, and also or get Rock on. and Rule. Didn't Unearthed Films release Rock and Rule? Did they? They might. The animated film, and I've thought like, oh, that's a weird. Uh... That's a weird choice for that label. I, they also put out Unnameable, which is a really, really great non-directed by Stuart Gordon H.B. Lovecraft adaptation that it doesn't involve any kind of snuff film, Nick. That you might be disappointed. Well, it's but... Lovecraft though, so I'm into that. Yeah, just just no snuff and penises or whatever else is in most of these movies uh for my rewatch and listen i haven't been reading much i know but watching i've watched a couple of things that's gonna give away when we actually recorded this episode watch walking the edge which is um stars robert forrester and nancy kwan it's a movie i'd seen years ago but fun city editions just put it out on blu-ray so it was kind of nice to revisit it and then I haven't watched it since I moved to Los Angeles and realizing that most of the movie was shot around Larchmont Village, which is kind of near where I live. And knowing specific locations like, hey, that that's a dentist office now, but it was a place where the real estate agent who Nancy Kwan shoots was at. And, you know, there was a car, the car, the cabbie car repair shot is now like a nail salon. So it's kind of nice. I know Kayla is very big into locations so it was i went for a walk a couple weeks ago and then walked by that place and it's like yeah walking the edge was shot there also also lived near the um liquor store from neon maniac so that's close to my heart uh, i also watched um picnic at hanging rock i hadn't watched that in ages and i don't know why but i got an inkling to watch it for some reason. I think it might have been something you and I were talking about, Nick, that brought it up. I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of a nice revisit. And because it was recently 4th of July, I watched my favorite 4th of July movie. No, it's not Jaws. It's Roller Coaster. I'm glad Sparks has become a household name because there's a really great Sparks scene in Roller Coaster that I'm hoping more people talk about. And it's it was a movie. I love Roller Coaster. I think we already talked about. It. We did a Fourth of July episode last year, but like I can't state how much I love Roller Coaster as a movie. It's one of those universal like disaster sense around movies. Except the disaster is a mad bomber played by Timothy Bottoms that's threatening to blow up amusement park rides unless he gets his money, and a safety inspector, which is a great working class job if I ever heard one. Our amusement park safety inspector played by George Segal must stop him. Last thing I also watched, I also watched on 4th of July. Not that it's 4th of July related, but it's kind of a nice summary movie, I'd say. It's The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which by Charles B. Pierce. Hadn't watched that in for ages. I forgot he plays like the comic relief role, which was a thing in lots of 70s exploitation movies. Like, let's do this hard, nasty exploitation film and then have comedy for no reason that doesn't quite work. One of my favorite aspects of those movies. Like the bumbling cops in uh, Last House La- on the Left. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. It, it's such a tonal, like, shit show. It's just like, I mean, they're in the back of the chicken truck and all that. But, like, <laughs> it, it, it was a thing. It's just like, we need to break up the tension. So let's put the most ridiculously inappropriate comedy scene 
in a nasty, nasty exploitation movie. Listen-wise, listen to Raekwon only built for Cuban links, because just got tickets since him, Ghostface Killer, and the Jizza are all doing a Wu-Tang tour playing, like, I guess their debut albums. Listen to Ransom 7, which is Ransom's kind of a, I don't want to say he's a newer rapper, but he's kind of more old school. Nick introduced me to him, and he just, it's kind of a Seven Deadly Sins-themed rap record, which is pretty cool. Uh, but listen to some death metal as well. We'll listen to the new Witch Vomit, Abhorrent Rapture. It's an EP. It's like four songs in 18 minutes. Definitely more on the thrashy death metal end of things. Also listen to the new Swervil Rod, Excretion of Mortality, which uh, both of those records came out on 20 bucks spin, so gave those a spin. And then decided to just have some jazz as well, because let's, let's be varied here. Threw on John Coltrane, my favorite things. Classic record, not the most avant-garde of Coltrane's career, but it's a nice record. And I also put on Thelonious Monk, Genius of Modern Music. So that's what I've been reading, watching, or listening to. Or just watching and listening, since I'm not really reading. It's too bad Witch Vomit wasn't the jazz band. My Favorite Things by Witch Vomit. Maybe they'll cover it. I, I would like to see. I know Chris Barnes, who used to be in Cannibal Corpse and his band Six Feet Under, did a bunch of weird like cover records where they covered like songs a death metal band had no reason to ever cover. Can't say those are great albums, but I could I, I, I could see Chris Barnes crooning my favorite things. <laughs> there we go. Kayla, I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast and talking about your amazing career and your continued success um where can people find you online well luckily i have my own website as of earlier this year so it's my name kaylajanice.com however my name is impossible to spell so probably no one will ever find it looking trying to look that up also it doesn't have a hyphen in it i don't think in the url my name has a hyphen in it um but uh yeah so kaylajanice.com somehow if people can find that um, and then there's also the folk horror film has its own website, Woodlands Dark and DaysBewitched.com. Uh, both of them, the email goes to me directly. So if people need to reach me, they can do it that way. Um, and they both link to each other, you know, so, uh, but yeah, KayliJanice.com has all of my stuff. It's got all my programming, writing, upcoming projects, films, everything, um, yeah, and then I'm also on Instagram, uh, just under my name, and Twitter I'm on as like Big Smash Kayla, and then Facebook I don't accept people as friends, so <laughs> don't don't bother. Um, <laughs> well, it's, I'm really for some reason I'm really paranoid I, because I use Facebook as like I'll actually post shit there when I'm drunk and mad or something, you know, and like so so I don't actually accept someone there unless I really know them. Whereas, like, the other ones, like, are just more public, you know? Like, I share my movies I watch or whatever, so. I mean, we all can't be Paul Schrader. <laughs> yeah. The, the, be the best Facebook going. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Uh, this episode will be out in October, so expect some Halloween season Void stuff coming your way. But until next time, see you in the Void. void.